Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration with Rocky for the week of June 20th, 2023, talking about all the DC books. Yes. Uh, what do you think of this week, Rock? We had a lot of we had a lot of books this week. It felt like a lot of books and uh, a lot of lot of interesting books. I, I think there were some some good ones. I was I was uh, I, I felt I had some substance to read this week. I like it uh, and lots to talk about. Not uh, not necessarily universal praise by any stretch, but uh, I was inter- I was interested this week. I en- I enjoyed reading the comics this week, even the ones that I didn't really I, I have some issues with. I still enjoyed reading them just because sometimes I like a good rant and there might be a few good rants here as we get going. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, you know, it's kind of an interesting week. Uh, it's way for the past couple of weeks where nothing like blew me out of the water. It's been it's been a while since something was like, oh, my God, that was so good. Um, but I can't point to anything this week and say, oh, my God, that was terrible. You know, there's a few things that. Or, you know, I could kind of nitpick, um, yeah. but yeah, I think overall it was a, it was a pretty strong week. So uh, we should also mention, since this is the first time we're recording, uh, since the news broke that John Romita Sr. passed away, um, seminal Spider-Man artist, maybe the Spider-Man artist. And I, you know, I say that because it wasn't just the fact that his art was in the pages of Spider-Man during very formative time, you know, following Steve Ditko, he introduced so many characters, you know, Rhino and Mary Jane, probably the the most enduring and most popular. And that, that iconic image of her, you know, full page splash face at tiger, you've hit the jackpot. Uh, It wasn't just that it was the fact that it was his artwork that was on t-shirts and, you know, under underwear and t uh, did I say t-shirt already like mugs and you know all, all the merchandise right stickers and pencils and like anything you could think of when you went in the store and you were going to buy a, a spider-man toy or any kind of spider-man merchandise whatsoever that was Ramita's art that was Ramita's version of of spider-man because it was just so classic so it goes far beyond you know the reach of what comic book readers or, or you know longtime Marvel fans will have seen People the world over have seen his version of Spider-Man because of licensing. So that's part of the reason that everybody thinks of him as the definitive Spider-Man artist. Uh, and I, I never had the opportunity to meet him, unfortunately. Uh, but by all accounts, he was a, a gentleman. He was very um, encouraging to the younger generation. So many uh, artists from Todd McFarlane to Jimmy Palmiotti uh, you know, talking about, yeah, uh, Greg Capullo is another one. This guy was, was the art director at Marvel when I was first there, when I was learning the ropes, didn't know anything, snot-nosed kid. And, you know, he took the time to critique me and uh, critique my art and, uh, you know, tell me what I w- how I could improve and, you know, did it in a very kind manner and, you know, wasn't condescending or, or what have you. So uh, it's a big loss. He was 93. So, you know, I wouldn't say it was tragic, but, you know, anytime somebody of his caliber passes away, it's it's a loss. You know, uh, he was definitely comic book royalty in my mind. And obviously our condolences go out to uh, to his family. Uh, his son, obviously, very successful comic book artist, John Romita Jr. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a big loss. Um, to me, he will always be the 
Spider-Man artists. I know Ditko was the first, uh, but for me, when I think of what Spider-Man looks like, when I think of what Peter Parker looks like, Mary Jane, Henry, uh, Harry Osborn, like Norman Osborn, all those, all those characters, Green Goblin, when I picture them in my mind, I'm picturing them as rendered by John Romita Sr. So, yeah, he reminds me of uh, John Romita Sr. reminds me of uh, Kurt Swan, uh, like Kurt Swan is to me to, to Superman. You know, that's when I got into comic books and I was like back, back like. Good Lord, when I was, what, I'm 54 now, so back when I was seven, six, seven, John Romita Sr., I, all those back issues of Spider-Man, which I still have, it's John Romita Sr., his art's just bad. I think of Spider-Man, I too think of his art, and just like I think of, I associate Kurt Swan's of uh, <laughs> Superman uh, as well, so those are the two definitive, and I, I still recall quite fondly the uh, the uh, Superman versus uh, Spider-Man and uh, team up and what have you, and yeah, no, it's it's definitely a loss. But ninety-three years old, at least we, we got a legend. He had a he he had a long long tenor, and uh, you know, thankfully his son is uh, has had a pretty good run on Spider-Man as well. So it, we you know, legacy just doesn't exist in comic book characters. Uh, comic book creators have legacy too. So it's uh, it's it's a it's a sad loss, but it's also a, a pretty a wonderful celebration of his life. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Uh, speaking of celebrations, Wonder Woman 800 is here. Uh, there's a, a couple of writers, Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad, credited as writers. There's a whole slew of artists, just like we had for Whatever Happened to the Warrior of Truth Part 1. Uh, and they're each doing sort of these different dream sequences. We saw last issue, she's asleep, she's dreaming. So we have Joelle Jones, Aletha Martinez, Mark Morales, Nick Robles, Todd Nock, Skylar Patridge, Cully Hamner, and Jen Bartell listed as artists with Jordi Belair, Tamara Bonvillon, and Jen Bartell listed as colorists. Pat Brousseau handles the letters. There's a whole slew of covers. Um, and then there's a backup story. We'll get to that in, in a little bit. Uh, as far as the main story, again, I'm never a big fan when, when they do these jam pieces, so to speak, uh, where it's, you know, this artist is drawing these pages and this other artist is drawing these other pages. It, it makes sense. They make it work because they're different dream sequences. And Diana's jumping from, you know, dream to dream to dream. She's entering Superman's dream. She's entering Batman's dream. She's in Yara Flora's dream, that sort of thing. Um, this, I don't know if this was supposed to feel profound or um, emotional, but if so, it didn't, it didn't land for me. I, I sort of just, felt like for these last two issues, like what was the point if this is supposed to be the period on the end of the sentence for these creators, and what they had to say about wonder woman, it, it really landed flat for me. Um, it just, it didn't feel emotional. I, I, like I said, it really, I really just ended up feeling like, what was the point of that? I, I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, and what, <laughs> one of the things that, and I don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm a fan of Cully Hamner's art, but I'm not sure in his sequence, he draws the Batman dream sequence. I'm not sure what the heck it's supposed to be on young Bruce Wayne's chin. It looks like, like stubble for lack of a better. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess it's supposed to be like, you know, he, he's, his chin is all like up from uh, emotion or whatever, but it, it, just, it looks so strange to me. Um, I was like, God, does he need to shave? Is that, that what's going on? Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't have much else to say about this. I mean, uh, this, this Wonder Woman run has been, 
uneven to say, say, you know, the best, the first couple of issues, we were excited for it. It seemed to meander. It never really seemed to have a point. Um, trial of the Amazons was ultimately a disappointment. So yeah, I don't know what it is about DC that they can't, they can't seem to get a decent creative team on wonder woman. Um, yeah. it's, it's rough, but there are some, some of the, and some of the arts better than others. The Skylar Patrick's pages with Artemis are fantastic. Todd knock pages are fantastic as well. Um, so yeah, ultimately it was just okay. Um, I'm definitely ready for the new era of wonder woman, not to say it's going to be better just cause it's Tom King, but, uh, we got a couple of months obviously before it starts with night terrors taking up the next two months. So, uh, we'll see. And the backup kind of gives us a sneak peek, uh, of some of what Tom King may be doing with the character. But, uh, ultimately, yeah, this was, this was kind of a miss for me. Um, well, I, I don't, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think you and I probably have more exciting things to say or at least have more interesting things to say when we get to the Tom King backup as a as a sort of a tease of what's coming uh, in September when Tom King takes over Wonder Woman. But this uh, this this is this end. This is the end. Uh, the main story here is the end of the Clooney, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad's uh uh, Wonder Woman run. Uh, I, I'm not giving it a descriptor. I'm not giving it an adjective. I wish I could say it was an epic Wonder Woman run, but it wasn't. It was underwhelming. This, this is part two of a story called Whatever Happened to the Warrior of Truth. And I, I think it's a misrepresentation of what that title actually means. There was that classic Superman story, Whatever Happened to, to Superman, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow by Alan Moore. There was even a Neil Gaiman story in Batman, Whatever Happened to the Dark Knight. Uh, this is not worthy of that mantle. Uh, but, uh, but I will say this. Uh, there is a Wonder Woman. This just consists of, uh, it was never explained, Wonder Woman fell asleep. Uh, after being after defeating Hera in the uh, in, in this in the previous storyline, and now for whatever reason they don't want to wake her up, they want to let her finish her dream for reasons which aren't really clear. But uh, uh, she basically has she dreams about Superman, Wonder Girl, Artemis, and she dreams about numerous things. And uh, because she's mortal and divine, apparently they should just let her dream and have her dreams. And uh, I'm gonna just I'm gonna. I'm going to jump ahead and state something that encapsulates the essence of why Wonder Woman is consistently, generally speaking, consistently over the last 50 years, the worst written character in DC, uh, in the DC echelon of heroes. And that's something that she says to Bruce Wayne in her dreams. Uh, And in her dream, she talks to Bruce Wayne and she states to Bruce Wayne, she says to Bruce Wayne that for, for me, everyone expects perfection, even you. Bruce and and then but Batman calls Diana his rock and I just found that so interesting that Diana is complaining to Bruce that from her everyone expects perfection from her which is so funny because I think that that's one of the things one of the reasons why Wonder Woman is consistently generally speaking not a well-written character is because every writer that approaches Wonder Woman writes her as if she is perfect and they pretend to give her flaws but they don't they don't uh, what they do is they end up making her look stupid. And instead of calling her out for her stupidity, which actually would give her flaws, they, they somehow force that. Like, and the Clune Rads did that in their run. Diana did a whole slew of really dumb things. And, and rather than being called out for it, it was just breezed over. And I'm not going to go, go through all the details. Uh, you and I both, well, especially me, I think probably more than you, ranted about various aspects of the storyline. But it's Wonder Woman's perfection, and it's the writer's fault 
that Wonder Woman is perceived that way. It's the writer's fault. They're speaking outside, and, and that's what's so frustrating. And I'm, I'm going to just maybe ruffle a lot of feathers of those who are listening. But one good thing about Tom King, what's he really good at? Ruffling feathers. And I don't care if he's a bull in the china shop with this character. Now, will I come to regret my words? Maybe. I got some reasons to be concerned when we talk about the backup. But somebody's got to rock the boat. And if Wonder Woman, in fact, has any flaws, I think it's about time we saw them. And because I'm getting real sick and tired of this supplicating, kind, compassionate woman who is boring as hell and who has the most boring rogues gallery, the boring villains. And we needs we need to see why Wonder Woman is wondrous. And I hope Tom King can bring that. And without further ado, that brings us to the backup, which you can start us off with. <laughs> Jace. Yeah. One thing before I get to the backup, the thing is because she is so uninteresting in, in the hands of these writers that are trying to do this, maybe that's the reason she feels like a guest star in her own book and has for a long time. They brought in all these other characters, right? Yeah. Rubia and Yara and all these oh. different Amazons. Cause it's like, Sad. what else can you do with Wonder Woman when this, you know, it's been told like she's inspiring. She's, you know, perfection. She's this, she's that. Yeah. There's no, there's no relatability to the character. So none. Uh, yeah. When it comes to the backup. Uh, so fantastic art, first of all, by Daniel Samper, who, who's going to be the artist when Wonder Woman comes back in September, written by Tom King. As I mentioned, Tameo More does the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, and this is sort of a flash forward. Uh, we are far in the future. We are seeing uh, John Kent as Superman. Don't know where his father is. We're seeing Damian Wayne as Batman. Don't know where his father is. They are um, the, the Trinity, as it were, along with this, this character, Wonder Woman's daughter, who we knew we were going to introduce, get introduced to. And her name is Trinity. She does have three different lassos, the three different lassos of fate, as it were. So the golden lasso of truth, as we have come to know it, there's a black lasso. There's also a white one or a silver one. And she sort of has this, even though she's younger, she sort of has this attitude that she's she's a little condescending to John and Damien. And she sort of calls the shots and she wants to know some information uh, that her mother has sort of forbidden her to to, to know, to have. They, she, they go into the three of them, go into this cave they're not supposed to go into. They've all made a, a vow um, to their parents and now they're breaking the vow and it's all based on the fact Trinity, Elizabeth, Lizzie, whatever you want to call her, is sort of, it feels like she's forcing Damien and John to, to do this. And once she gets in there, there's three different trials that, you know, each of them is going to face one. Um, the trial of, uh, of pain is going to be undertaken by Superman the trial of skill by Batman and then the trial of honor by Elizabeth or Trinity, who honestly doesn't seem to have much honor. Once she gets in there, she's speaking to this old man, for lack of a better term. He's in shadow. We can't really tell who he is. Uh, she mentions him formally being royalty. She calls him your majesty. Uh, he's in shadows. We don't know who he is. And she, she wants to know something, some secret uh, about how Diana defeated him and, you know, he clearly is an enemy of Diana saying, we owe Princess Diana our vengeance and, and what have you. Um, he says, of course, pardon the ramblings of an old king. Uh, this is a story of how she defeated me and it's all to be continued in Wonder Woman 1. So the thing that I was left with, the, the 
just the overriding impression of the story is, oh my God, Trinity is a complete brat. She's completely unlikable. Um, almost to the point of being worse than Damien when he first showed up, when I first read <laughs> yeah. him. Matt yeah. is saying something because I despise Damien. Um, but at least Damien, he was, he, Damien was a brat, but he lacked any sort of self-awareness, right? Like he, he grew up so isolated uh, and in such a way he was put on a pedestal that you kind of couldn't fault him because he had no self-awareness of, of how abrasive he was. With this Trinity character, that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. She seems to think she's so popular and so wonderful and so smart and just better than everyone else. A sense of condescension in her character, like, I, I really, really, like, I, I almost wanted to stop reading at times. That's how unlikable she, she is. And I, I really hope that we don't get much of her in, in the Wonder Woman run. I hope this is just, I don't want to say a marketing gimmick or whatever. Um, but it, it, she just came across as so unlikable. Um, so I was really looking forward to the Tom King run. To be honest, after reading this, I'm worried now. Um, all that being said, the art could not be more amazing. Daniel Semperi's art is so spectacular. Um, just, I mean, this guy might be the best, the best artist working for DC right now. He really might be like, he's just getting better and better. Uh, as far as the scripting and the dialogue, I, I liked all that. I liked the, um, I liked the interaction between an older Damien and an older John, um, I didn't mind seeing them. You know, I didn't get the feeling like that they're not worthy. Like sometimes I get that feeling with John in his current book, less so his current book as, as um, Superman, son of Kal-El when he's first learning the ropes, but far in the future. So you can kind of figure that he's paid his dues. Um, but yeah, so mixed, mixed feelings. Uh, if Trinity wasn't so unlikable, I, I would be still, I would still be really excited. But yeah, that that, that excitement has been tempered by just how unlikable Trinity is. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I agree with you, and uh, just you know, I'm I'm, I'm tempted to just. Uh, my initial thoughts were when I read it was, I, I can't believe it. it actually makes me wonder if Darkseid is her father. Because she comes across like, you didn't say the word, but I'll say it. She comes across like a bitch. Um, the B word, that's pretty bad. Uh, one could hasten to go to the next letter of the alphabet after B and say that word too. But let's, I won't go that far. But I'm wondering if, if Steve Trevor is her father, as, as one would hope her father is, that there's a very specific mention. I, I wrote down all the clues as to the circumstances surrounding Trinity's birth contained in this story. And the one major clue is that uh, Damien st said that Lizzie spent most of her childhood, she grew up in the Fortress of Solitude. Well, if she grew up in the Fortress of Solitude, I can't imagine Steve Trevor lived in the Fortress of Solitude. Now, who else lives in the Fortress of Solitude? I know Superman does. I mean, I mean, it makes me wonder is... Is a, is a member of the Superman family, Lizzie's father. I mean, it's just interesting. Now, the, the other thing I want to say is all the clues here, I, I don't want to make the mistake, and I, I say this as someone who did not like Tom King's Batman run, 
Tom King was removed off Batman for a reason. It's because none of us, uh, uh, every time an editor would ask him where a storyline was going, he never had a direct answer and eventually culminated with him being removed from the title. He finally got 12 issues and he told, he finished that story with Batman Catwoman. Another thing that I wasn't a fan of. And the bottom line is early Batman run with Tom King, he introduced a lot of plot points. And there's a, there's a slew of them that never saw fruition. There was all kinds of misdirection. There were things that were mentioned that were simply not addressed again. And there are so many interesting things that are said here. Uh, the, the, all, the Trinity, Damien and Jonathan, both say that they will, uh, they both admit that by even being on the island and going into this magic cave, as uh, Trinity describes it, that they're going to, that they're betraying their sacred oaths and defying, defiling the gods that are left in the world. That's from that's from Damien. That's a pretty strong word. There, uh, uh, when when uh, Lizzie says that uh, she she grew up in the Fortress of Solitude, Damien tells Lizzie that they are all breaking a big rule that they vowed never to break to to, to in order to help Lizzie. Well, what rule are they breaking? Are uh, they confronting the gods? This is interesting. Uh, the dark spirit that confronts uh, that confronts Trinity. Uh, basically tells her that you broke the crone, you defeated the Iron Army, you cracked the birth prayers. What does any of that mean? It, it seems like, is this, are we, are we going to be showing how, she, how Trinity when she was younger? Because we know Tom King has said in an interview, she's 20 years old in this story. And so this takes place. And this, this, so uh, there's a whole one year's worth of Wonder Woman stories that leads to the birth of Elizabeth Marston uh, <laughs> Prince. And so this is interesting. So, the circumstances of Trinity's birth appears to be the secret that Diana never tells Trinity. Can't tell Trinity the secret of her birth. This is what Trinity is in this cave confronting this prisoner who is a king of something. He's a former king of something. Is he Zeus? Zeus is a king. I don't know. Who? How many kings are there in the DC universe? High father? Uh, we know Tom King has, has a love for the new Genesis. I don't know. All kinds of speculation here. Um... This is a very interesting at the end. This old guy who's a king who basically he, he's going to tell Trinity the story of a myth that killed America and birthed a new wonder. Big words. Now, I'm, we're used to big words like this and, dial, and, and setups like that from Tom King. Whether or not he's going to deliver is another thing entirely. But I'm prepared to cut him a lot of slack. I, I hope Tom King has learned a lot from his very uh, problematic Batman run. It was very divisive. I hope... Wonder Woman isn't like that, but already in this one issue, I'm more interested in Wonder Woman and in Diana and in Trinity uh, because, you know, I got to admit, Trinity, while she's she kind of annoys me and she's kind of a B-I-T-C-H, good. At least that tells me that she's not particularly likable. I hope they, just like Yara 4, at least, at least that's a flaw right there. If she is going to be likable, show it. Uh, and I really, really, really hope Tom King is not afraid to have Wonder Woman screw up, actually screw up and actually so, show some flaws. And because that, that's what's crucial, because uh, it's because this perfection, this this modicum, this this ongoing portrayal of perfection and flawlessness, I hope it doesn't carry through with I hope Trinity doesn't end up being a Mary Sue. Uh, and uh, my fingers are crossed, but I'm I'm still interested in this. I'm, he's, got, he's got my attention and my curiosity, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit on edge, but I'm sure Tom King is thinking that's a good thing and he'll impress us more 
in September when he starts his one-year run, leading to this incredible, epic birth of the next legacy of Wonder Woman. Yeah, I want to make it clear that Trinity Elizabeth Marston Prince, she did not grow up in the Fortress of Solitude. That it's, it's John Kent. She's talking to John Kent. She is talking to John Kent when oh. she said, you grew up in the Fortress of Solitude. Oh, okay. Not, <laughs> uh, Good. All right. That makes me feel better. Thank you for making me feel better because I was worried. I thought, geez, did, did Wonder Woman do the nasty with Clark? <laughs> yeah, I, I Thank thought, God. I thought I saw somewhere in the story that there was hints of who her father was. Um, I couldn't find it when I went back through. I know I saw it somewhere. Maybe it's in an upcoming comic. Um, but I don't think her father's any, you know, it's not, it's not Superman for sure. It's not Superman. Could it be dark side? I, I guess. Um, I think Tom King is smart enough not to have this character be the product of rape. Um, I would think, (laughs) you know, he's learned his lesson of things like, um, heroes in crisis. And I don't think DC editorial would have approved of that anyway. So, yeah, not sure. I I, I kind of think that if Steve Trevor was her father, she would be using his last name. So I, I don't know. It may be that she doesn't have a father. Maybe she was born the way you know Wonder Woman, created by Clay. Don't know. Um, but it does seem it, it does seem like I, I agree with you that what she's trying to extract from this former king, enemy of Wonder Woman, or what have you, it, is the the answer of, you know, how did I come to be? Maybe she herself doesn't know who her father is. And I'm basing all that on the conversation that, uh, that Trinity has with Hippolyta before she get, when she's going through the trial of honor. Um, and Hippolyta tells her, you said, what, you know, what are they breaking? Well, they're breaking the vow. (laughs) They're breaking the rule. They're breaking the promise they made to Diana, to Clark, to Bruce, to Hippolyta, to all these, elder heroes uh, when they said that they would never enter that cave. You know, Hippolyta yeah. says, I forbade all of you. You swore oaths. Yeah. Never it's not really them. Hippolyta. It's a dark spirit. Yeah. But the point yeah. stands. They, yeah. they have made a promise. That's what they're breaking. And then that, that um, imposter Hippolyta, she does say, uh, and we saw that uh, Trinity said earlier in the story that she faced down the crone, you know, that you broke the crone. You face down the army. You cracked the birth prayer. So maybe um, they didn't know. I, I, again, I'm speculating. Uh, I wasn't necessarily planning on speculating, but you've gone so far into detail. So uh, my thought being maybe they didn't know where this cave was. They promised not to enter this cave, um, and they didn't even know where it was. They couldn't have entered it if they wanted to, but by cracking the birth prayer, whatever that is, uh, that it may have revealed the location. So. Uh, again, I'm more interested in this idea uh, of the political feel that Tom King's bringing to Wonder Woman. I sort of could do without this whole idea of her having a daughter. And now we have this mystery of who the father is and whatever. And maybe not. Maybe we'll find out in the first issue of the new Wonder Woman who her father is. But yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not hopeful, uh, as hopeful for uh, the series with if Trinity's going to play a big part in it. But like you said it's supposed to be a number of issues before we get to the birth of Trinity. And then she's just a little baby. I don't know how she could be super annoying as a little baby, but uh, <laughs> yeah. on the level of 
unlikability, uh, it's entirely possible that she could be unlikable even as a baby. I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Well, moving on. Up next is the vigil issue number two. This is from writer Ram V. Lalette Kumar Sharma is the artist. Rain Barreto with Lee Luffridge on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. This is part of the We Are Legends uh, initiative. Um, these Asian heroes. So limited series. We're going to get six issues of this, I think, five or six issues. Uh, and the first issue just, it was one of the best comics I've read in a long time, really blew me away. Uh, so let's get your thoughts on the, the second issue, Rocky, before I uh, give my thoughts. Uh, yeah. Well, we continue to, uh, this issue starts off with us getting to know another one of the care, one of the members of the vigil that we only got hinted at in the first issue. And that was this character called Arclight, who, and there, it starts off with a flashback and giving us the origin of Arclight, who is this uh, Captain Akib Khan, who appeared to be, I think, a member of the Indian military. And uh, his, his wife and daughter are killed in a chemical explosion. And he's, and he spends his, he quit, he quits the military and he spends his time investigating the cause of the explosion. And he starts to embrace conspiracy theories in terms of what caused it and everything else. And he's got military, his military command, uh, trying to get him to come back to the uh, military and trying to get his head back in the game, but he refuses to. And that's the flashback. And then when it shows us in the present, he's a member of, of course, the vigil. He's, uh, he's in fact, uh, recruited by, uh, Dr. Sankaran, uh, who who likes who's clearly using Arclight's uh, power set to help uh, essentially uh, the vigils. Remember what the vigil, what their actual purpose is, is that they essentially liberate or, or they they steal weapons that are. Uh, they want to steal weapons before weapons of mass destruction can get into the hands of supervillains. That's what they do. And this issue has the uh, vigil sending arc light to this, uh, to this uh, antenna array uh, that has this, has this is capable of generating all kinds of uh, static electricity and has within this complex, a young boy who is been weaponized to uh, been basically weaponized to be sort of a metahuman uh, because one of the things that the first issue established was that there was a there was an indie human an, an Indian the country of India had a metahuman program where they were trying to develop their own metahumans but it was shut down but Dr. Sankaran uh, had well he was part of the program he left but he continued uh, and he put together the team of the vigil to, to try to protect the world from uh, weapons getting to the hand of supervillains. Well, Arclight comes across a young boy who seems to have the ability to control the weather. And this young boy is called is called the code word El Nino uh, because he's capable of changing the weather. And Arclight essentially helps this young boy escape by having the young boy bring down, bring the, making it rain on all the soldiers. And then Arclight uses his static electricity powers to electrify the rain and incapacitate all the soldiers. And, uh, and uh, meanwhile, the uh, other members of the team, uh, uh, Dodge and the Saha character are investigating the death of another one of their members that was killed at the end of last issue. And we, uh, this sort of, this leads us to the end because we, uh, this is still a setup issue because at the end, we get to the end with Arclight having rescued this young boy, this El Nino young boy named El Nino. And Dr. Sakharan ends up, uh, accessing this strange other world 
where he's he's concerned about what his what appears to be the bad guy named Hep. This Mister Hep is a character that gives an order to this other character to kill a CEO and he's apparently got connections to LexCorp. So we got these, we got all these players, these moving parts, and it seems to be coming into play here. I don't know how they're all, all these pieces are connected yet, but it's interesting. Uh, at the end of the second issue, I'm still pulled into this story. I'm still interested to see where this is going to go this mr hep character he's got he he looks sort of like an eccentric young uh eccentric middle-aged man he's got this cool looking cane with almost looks like a like a cobra or a snake a snake uh head on a golden snake head on the top of the cane as he ticked as he as he clicks and walks up the the cement stairs up to the lexcore building in metropolis uh clearly uh he had another one of his minions by the name of uh uh, by the name of, uh, uh, I'm trying to, uh, Vander Hall is a sharpshooter and he's, he used him to kill this one CEO in, in Del, in Del High, uh, and, or Delhi. And, um, again, I, I like, I, what I really like, I enjoy how Ram V is exploring some, some politics and machinations in the country of India. I like how this Dr. Saccharin is, is sort of like a, he's sort of like a Professor X, but for the this new team called the Vigil, and I like how it's suggested that this idea that there's there's other there's other metahumans there's other young children that are victims of essentially metahuman experiments in in India, and we see kind of this theme already. We see it played being played a little bit with Doom Patrol. We we see there's lots of opportunities. What I like about the writers, the current crop of writers at DC, is notwithstanding whatever your view might be in terms of the quality of all the writers, the fact is is that they're introducing more and more young characters, a new a new a new generation of heroes and or villains that can be explored in future stories of the DCU. And this new El Nino character is one that uh, I think might potentially stand out. He looks kind of crazy. He reminds me, I mean, he, he looks like a kid with a television set on his head, <laughs> but this television set seems to be able to enhance his, his ability to, he, this El Nino character utilizes his emotions to, and his emotions are essentially what channel into the weather. So it's an interesting new character and how this, you know, what Dr. Sankran's ultimate goal here is and in terms of this battling this doctor, this Mr. Hep, who he seems to know at the end as he channels this other world or this almost like the, he enters a meditative state and enters this strange world with floating eyes and floating octopi in the space. It looks really, really weird, but it's fascinating. I'm, I'm captivated by this and Ram V has my curiosity and attention. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, getting the background of Arclight. What I found interesting is in the first issue, we got a little bit of the background of the vigil. We got background on the doctor. Uh, we got background on this new woman who's been sort of introduced to the, the secrets uh, of Dr. Sankarin and, and the vigil that they do. And so a little bit of a, like a setup issue, right? But we learned about multiple characters and one of the characters, and I, I think I, I commented on it, one of the characters we didn't get a lot of info on was Arclight. Um, he gets a whole issue dedicated to him. So I think that speaks to how important of a character he is. And I, I love the emotionality. I loved the relatability. I loved the consequences here. Like this guy, you know, he has the kid, the, the TV set kid, El Nino, 
he has them make it rain. Hey, make it rain. And then he shocks these soldiers. He electrocutes them, kills them, right? There's no, oh, woe is me. I'm Batman. I don't kill kind of, no. He's like, final solution. You're all dead. Like, end of story. He's not apologetic about it. So this is not... This is not like a traditional superhero team in terms of, hey, we don't kill, we do the right thing, that you know, that sort of stuff. There are consequences, there are stakes. It's an impactful story. I'm more interested in Arclight than ever. Uh, visually, I think he's awesome. I think the art by Kumar is is amazing. So again, I, I'm really impressed. I didn't uh, enjoy this as much as the first issue, um, only because the first issue felt like we got a bigger chunk of story. But again, I mean, they're totally different animals. The, the first issue was set up to do, to, you know, introduce the idea of the vigil and to some multiple characters. This issue is just focused on Arclight and it does a good job of giving us kind of a window into the soul of Arclight and who he is and the trauma that he's uh, carrying around with him, having lost his uh, wife and son. So yeah, absolutely amazing. Still, still a huge fan of this series. So I uh, can't wait for more. All right, can you uh, can you pause it, Ricky? All right, so the next book we're going to talk about is Cyborg Number Two from writer Morgan Hampton. The artists are Tom Rainey. Uh, he gets a little assist from Valentine Delandro on the first, uh, or Valentine Delandro on the first three pages. Michael Tay on colors, Rob Lee on letters. For those not familiar, uh, we did review the first two, and I think I mentioned at that point that Morgan Hampton was a member of Milestone Initiative, helping uh, creators of color kind of get their feet wet. Uh, he's the first one that's had uh, got a regular gig with this ongoing cyborg. And I think Rocky and I were both pretty impressed with the, the first issue, some really interesting ideas, and ended on a bit of a cliffhanger with the, the personality or brain waves or memory or something of of um, of. of uh, Vic's father, Vic Stone's father, Silas Stone, being put into this robot um, from this uh, this other corporation, Solace uh, headquarters, uh, which is in Detroit, and we we had a little bit of a glimpse of their CEO, and it's kind of given lip service to you know brighter days, and but seems to be a little out of touch. And as we get to know him, his name is Marcus, and as we get to know him and see him a little more in this issue. It's clear that him and uh, Vic have history. They've known each other for a long time. Maybe they went to school together. I think it's, it's mentioned at some point. Uh, and apparently Silas was working with Marcus. But what's interesting is that Cyborg, he senses that his father's memories or what have you, it, it's, it's not a good connotation. He doesn't have positive feelings toward what Marcus is trying to do. So it's, it's interesting. The other thing that's interesting about the story is this sort of talking head person um, that hosts what looks to be sort of like a YouTube show called Do Better Detroit. And she's out there talking about politics and events that are happening in, in Detroit. She's calling out Cyborg. And meanwhile, on the right-hand side, you get these comments from the, the watchers, the listeners, what have you, um, to kind of give an everyman feel of it, uh, of what's going on. So that's interesting as well. Um, she's kind of harsh, though. I think she's... I don't know who peed in her Cheerios, but she doesn't seem to be objective. I guess it's her channel. She can do whatever the hell she wants. Um, you know, it's her hill and her beans. But yeah, she doesn't – I sort of feel like 
and I don't know if this is intentional from Morgan Hampton or not, but I saw, so what gives her the right to sit here and pass judgment, right? Like she's saying, this isn't good for Detroit. That's not good for Detroit. Who is she to say? Like, we don't even have any idea, any background or whatever. Is she just supposed to be the voice of the people? Um, so that, that's kind of interesting to me because you, you can already sense that there's going to be some sort of, you know, head on collision, if you will, between her and, and Cyborg. Uh, he seems to be kind of ignoring it for the time being, but I could definitely see it um, causing a problem at, at some point. So uh, the other thing that's cool is seeing a couple of old villains that we don't see very often. Um, villains that, uh, well, I think Shrapnel mostly known for being a Flash villain, but the other one, Fastball, I remember him way back in the day in, in Justice League um, issues, <laughs> specifically the Justice League Detroit, which again, we're in Detroit. And for some reason, somebody's hired fastball and hired Trapnel to go and destroy the old uh, headquarters of the Justice League Detroit. So that was in the back, a little bit of um, a DC history there. So I like where this is going. Uh, we have talked in the past about the inconsistency of Tom Rainey's art. Sometimes his anatomy looks a little wonky, but I, I, it never pulled me out of the story here. There was never a time where I felt like um, the proportions were off or what have you. Uh, his line weights are still a little heavy for my taste, but that's just, you know, that's just personal preference. I can't follow the storytelling. Um, and he, he conveys emotion with Cyborg really, really well. So overall, um, an impressive start, you know, an impressive first couple of issues of this, uh, of this series. So uh, what do you think, Rocky? It's, it's not bad. I, it's, uh, I can tell that uh, Morgan uh, Hampton here is, he's, he is, trying to build the idea, build on the idea that, you know, don't sell your soul to corporations. And I think the central, I think the central theme of this story is sort of encapsulated by the reporter, this uh, Estelle Green, who essentially is, is fearful. She's, she knows that Cyborg is a hero, a member of the Justice League. And she's, she starts off, uh, as she started off last issue, and she continues this issue on her sort of blog newscast, that she's worried that Cyborg's going to get tied up and that she doesn't have a lot of respect for Silas Stone, but Victor Stone, she has more respect for, but begins to lose respect for it because as Silas Stone, as he comes back and he makes an appearance now, he's almost like he's this AI in the form of this robot that comes to be known as Solace, Solace Synth and, uh, and uh, is, it becomes becomes affiliated with Marcus and this Solace Corporation and this whole idea of don't sell your soul to corporations. Don't sell your soul to social media. You won't get it back. And it's a very, it is a very timely message, so much as we've seen before in other media, and we certainly get a double down here. Uh, what I found kind of funny here is I remember that, uh, I think I think I remember like Ray Fisher got upset during the filming of Justice League because he was, he didn't want to say the expression booyah, booyah, or whatever. And I, I think I think it was uh, the director, uh, Josh Whedon, insisted that he say it and so did Jeff Johns. And that was, uh, Ray Fisher didn't, suit it, didn't think it suited the character. And here Estelle Green, the reporter, uh, refers to Cyborg as booyah boy <laughs> as a derogatory term. Booyah, boy! So, so uh, I just find it kind of comical there. I don't know if uh, Morgan Hampton was thinking of that, but I think it's uh, he, he. I mean, Estelle uh, Estelle Green herself is using the booyah, boy as almost a derogatory term. But it's um, clearly there's tension between Marcus and and uh, uh, Victor Stone, and it's quite obvious that that Silas Stone is very much he's he's sort of like he's like the Oracle. He really is like an Oracle. A cyborg actually takes his programming 
erases his programming out of the uh, synthetic android and puts it in a computer. And his father warns him at the end that Marcus is up to, to, to something seriously no good. And it's even worse than we could possibly imagine. And the secrets of Solace are where we're, we're going to be getting next issue. So I'm kind of curious to see where this is going. And for those that are wondering why the apocalyptic, remember that uh, Cyborg has apocalyptic uh technology in his system he he could not hack any of the systems in solace uh because it's their hack pro hack proof even from cyborg so uh, i have a sneaking feeling that marcus is going to be a formidable uh antagonist villain for cyborg as we move into future issues but all in all it's it's not bad it's still not really grabbing me with uh some a unique theme but it is a theme that maybe it's a timely one and one that we're, we we hear so much on the news that maybe we get tired of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that AI technology is something that it's on the horizon. And if ever there's a comic book, we really should be having a comic book like Cyborg that talks about AI and the dangers of AI and the advantages and disadvantages of it moving forward. And so this is exactly the type of comic book that should address that. And it is. So uh, we'll have to... The jury is still out to see how this first story arc ends, but uh, I'm it's I'm, I'm captivated enough to stay with it for now. Yeah, is could Marcus be some sort of version of G. Gordon Godfrey? Is what I'm what I'm wondering. Maybe a modern. Good. You know, modern yeah, version. that's right. Yeah. So uh, one other thing I'll say is I do <laughs> I appreciate that Cyborg is in clothes. You know, we never really think about him being unclothed, but really he has always been, uh, and that was something Morgan uh, made notice of and has put them put him in clothes and I yeah I appreciate that he's he's got clothes on again in this in this issue so uh, all right <laughs> up next we have Batman Superman World's Finest number 16 from writer Mark Wade Dan Mora is the artist Tamara Bondalon on colors Steve Wands on letters we're continuing the uh, Amazo story here and we, we kind of get the explanation of how exactly Amazo got so smart with this uh, Amazo 2.0 that he is He's smarter than than Ivo now. He, he basically, um, Professor Ivo kidnapped, um, what's his name, Will Magnus, the the creator of the uh, Metal Men, and forced him to build one of the electronic brains that gives the Metal Men their intelligence. Right, because Amazo's always been sort of a just a blunt instrument, for lack of a better term. Never been really that smart. So Will Magnus, with everything he's learned over the years with the Metal Man, built uh, another one, an updated version, gave it to Amazo. It made Amazo so smart, he was able to basically absorb the intelligence and knowledge of Will Magnus and Professor Ivo. So the, the intelligence uh, of both of them, um, which then only led him to want information from even more people who are uh, – AI focused, if you will, AI focused uh, scientists in the DCU. So Toy Man and Dr. Cyber and Bertram uh, Larvan. So he, he's really leveled up in a lot of ways. And that's why he's winning the fight against Batman, Superman, and um, basically the Justice League. I mean, we have uh, Hawkman showing up. Robin is there. So uh, Plastic Man, Metamorpho, sort of the, the, the terrifics, if you will. Um, so it's... It's real interesting, you know, give credit from Mark Wade for writing these stories and having a great understanding of these characters. Um, and he, he really writes stories. I, I feel like I say this every time we review one of these um, world's finest issues, but it's so true, right? Like he's writing these stories that feel like they'll fit into any era of the DCU. You know, you can read this series. You don't even know anything that's going on with, you know, with 
anything that happened in dark, uh, dark crisis, right? You don't need to know anything that's about to happen in night terrors. You don't need to know anything about Batman traveling in multiple dimensions or the Superman family or anything like that. You can just read this. It stands on its own and it's, it's fantastic. Right. And, and you can tell that Mark Wade is, is playing with all the toys. You know, I mentioned quite a few characters already. Um, and then halfway through this issue, we get Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and Supergirl and Firestorm showing up. Like, when's the last time we got we saw Firestorm? Like, I love Firestorm. It's so underutilized. Uh, and so, again, I'm really enjoying this. It's a classic feel. The Dan Mora art is simply fantastic. And uh, I'm real curious to see where it goes because at the end of the issue, Robin and Wonder Woman go to find Tio Morrow. He is probably – he's conspicuous in his absence, Amazo was out there trying to get all the, the most brilliant uh, scientists that know about AI uh, and robots and synthetic life forms and that sort of thing in the DCU. Tio Morrow, this is a guy that built Red Tornado. Like He is one of the top minds. So again, he's conspicuous that he's not there. So um, Wonder Woman and Robin go looking for him and he's kind of sitting in his house going, oh, I was waiting for you guys to show up. And they're like, what, what, what do you know about this? And he's like, well, uh, I ran all the simulations and there's uh, I'm, the reason I'm not fighting against it or the reason I'm just sitting here doing nothing is because it's hopeless. Like this version of Amazo is too smart. So, you know, he's willing to give up. We know it's not hopeless. We know the heroes are never going to give up. Uh, but it certainly raises the stakes. And uh, I appreciated that as well. So um, this is I don't want to say it's a perfect comic, um, but this series, you know, if you're an old school DC fan, this is a comic that captures that that feel, right? Like, again, it's timeless. It highlights the best things about DC. And you can tell Mark Wade, and I know this for a fact, he's having so much fun writing this series. And that comes through. It comes through in the story. Uh, it's just a joy to read. So uh, anyway, what, what were your thoughts on this issue, Rock? Uh, this felt like a Justice League story. And that's what I like about it. it this was beyond World's Finest, which was e makes it even better. It's a Justice League story. And this could be a, a done-in-one Justice League story, I guess, in a, whatever, two or three or four issues, whatever. But it's just well done. I can't believe how much is jam-packed in this issue. And what 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 also is so underrated that we take for granted with Mark Wade, but 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 we have to remind ourselves that we can't take it for granted. And that is he's really good at plotting. This is actually a really good, well-plotted story. And he makes, and he knows the power sets of all the heroes. And they're all consistent. And there's a reason why every single hero that takes place, that is in this comic, is in this comic. They're not just thrown in for shits and giggles. They actually serve a purpose. We talked about Toynan, Dr. Cyper, Bertram Larvin, uh, even Simon Stagg, Oliver Queen's in here because they were the billionaires that are financing what uh, what uh, Amazo was doing leading in a new Amazo. We've got the appearances of, uh, you know, of even Kelex, which is another AI. Kelex from the Fortress of Solitude, Fighting Hawkman, Plastic Man and the Metal Man fighting Cyborg Superman. And, I mean, it goes on and on. And then we got the Green Lantern, Firestorm, Supergirl, Metamorpho, Wonder Woman, Robin and the Flash show up. I mean, all of this in this one comic, and it all makes sense. And all of this, Batman figures out, you can see the detective work with Batman working behind the scenes, figuring out that T.O. Morrow is the one, as you said, is the one person that isn't accounted for. And he's the one, he's an AI genius, but he's not accounted for. 
But he so he sends Robin and uh, Wonder Woman to find him, and uh, and even Mark Wade. Mark Wade has openly admitted that he doesn't know how to he de- he doesn't have a handle on Wonder Woman, <laughs> and that's why he's never really written her. But you know he he respects her in this issue. He, Wonder Woman just trusts Batman when Batman says go find T.R. Morrow. Wonder Woman puts two and two together. So uh, even Mark Wade, who by his own admission, at least Mark Wade, who knows more about Wonder Woman than most writers have forgotten. He, he will actually acknowledge he doesn't know much about the character, but yet will respect her. This isn't a woman, Wonder Woman that's preachy or an idiot or unlikable or perfect. This is a Wonder Woman that just gets the job done. And uh, again, I just, I, I like the portrayals here. It's these, the characters at their core, at their best, winning the day and just straight fun, good plotting, fantastic art by Dan, uh, Dan Mora and just, just a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm looking forward to see where this is going. It ends on another cliffhanger in perfect Mark Wade style. Supergirl is actually new Amazo or, uh, you know, or Amazo about to attack Batman. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, again, this is just, as you said, this could be a, a story that takes place at any time. And, you know, you don't need to be continuity obsessed to enjoy this. But whether you're continuity obsessed or you're just a brand new reader, this is how, if comic books are written like this, you don't need to worry about continuity because everything you need to know is right in the story. Very well done. Yeah, exactly. And I just go back to how much fun he, he clearly is having. And he told me that I, well, last time when I talked to him, I was like, man, you're really killing it on World's Finest. He's like, I am having so much fun on writing that book. Like, it's just uh, it's fantastic. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Superman issue number five. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Art and cover by Jamal Campbell. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, I absolutely love this. We saw last issue, uh, Jimmy Olsen is dating uh, Silver Banshee. So that that's just... It's an odd couple, but it really, really works. Um, and Siobhan is, you know, she's trying to turn over a new leaf. She, she's approached by the two uh, mad scientists that are uh, uh, trying to take out Superman and Lex Luthor. And she's she's forced to become a Silver Banshee, and she's told that she needs to scream as loud as she can. Uh, and, and again, it's just them, these two guys trying to, to take out Superman, trying to do... Uh, whatever they can. And once Su- Superman does manage to kind of help out Silver Banshee with the um, assistance of, of Jimmy Olsen, which it's great. It, it shows how much Jimmy uh, really f- feels for her and cares about her and, and, and it's reciprocated. Um, so that again, I, I really like that Williamson has put those two together. So then Superman goes back to the site where he originally was uh, when he was first attacked by Silver Banshee now, these two scientists uh, reveal themselves to Superman and um, they tell basically Superman that, yeah, there's things that you don't know about uh, about Lex. Like it's, it's you know, worse than you think. And you, you sort of always feel like Superman knows in the back of his mind that there's something about Lex, that, you know, that Lex has secrets and there's even more horrible things. But he's Superman, right? And he's always going to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. He's all, He always feels that anybody can be redeemed. You know, you, you could make an argument that that's a fault that Superman has. He's not uh, perfect, if you will. Um, so you sort of understand where he's coming from. But Grafton Pharma, while not the most interesting uh, or fleshed out villains at this point, they do seem to be a little bit of a throwback in terms of like a Silver Age villain that just is bad for the sake of being bad. You know, I call them mustache twirling villains because... 
that kind of cackle and twirl their mustache and don't really have any other motivation other than that. It feels like at times. Um, so, you know, that, that can be boring. That can, it's just, there's no complexity there. It's, it's a lot harder to relate. You know, there's been certainly in the last couple decades, this, uh, this trend to make villains more relatable, live a little more in the gray area, even when they're doing bad things, you can understand their motivation. You can understand why they're doing what they're doing. So, uh, I, I, again, I just don't know that pharma and graft are, are working really well. These two mad scientist brothers, but again, uh, it's, it's a small nitpick. What I really liked about this issue, like I said, was the relationship between, uh, Jimmy and Siobhan. Um, we get the you know, couple of pages are sort of dedicated to their meat cute, if you will. Um, Siobhan is in a band called the Banshees and she's hanging up flyers and, um, a car drives by real fast and kind of blows them out of her hand and Jimmy catches them. And, um, you know, he doesn't know she's silver Banshee, but what I liked <coughs> is that we see that the, Jimmy didn't just find out that she was silver Banshee. Like she, she cared enough about him. They moved in together. She told him <laughs> and Jimmy's like, well, uh, okay. If you're sharing that you're silver Banshee, I should probably mention about the time I turned into a giant turtle and a monkey and a porcupine. And well, this might take a while. Cause we know, Certainly, if you add in Silver Age stories, Jimmy's sort of been been through the ringer, um, if you will. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like that relationship. I hope we see more of it. Um, you know, I like the idea of, you know, maybe I'm being hypocritical here too, right? Because I talk all the time about how I hate the idea of turning villains into heroes. Um, but the, the thing about Silver Banshee, she... she it was more of a legacy thing that she got these powers that she didn't want. She was never really an out and out villain the way somebody like Alex Luther is, you know? So her wanting to be good for the sake of her relationship and just wanting to stay out of trouble and not really having a desire to hurt people or, or anything like that. Like it, it makes sense to me. It, it, it works for me. So um, this was you. Uh, I'm surprised how much I'm enjoying Williamson's take on Superman. Uh, although I will say that, this is a title, you know, it is Superman's flagship book. Could make the argument action comics, but this one is the one that's called Superman. I think if a, uh, a person who's not familiar with comics just walks into a comic store, they want to buy Superman. This is the book they're more likely to buy than, than action comics. Um, that being said, I know Williamson wants to have a lot of these other classic Superman characters in the book. And I appreciate that. I mean, we've had Silver Banshee, we've had Parasite, um, We've got plenty of Jimmy. We've had plenty of Lois, clearly plenty of Lex. So even though it's a Superman book, it does feel a little bit more of an ensemble. Um, and so does Action Comics right now. And I, I'm sort of okay with that. Uh, I don't think everything needs to be 100% Superman uh, all the time. So, um, yeah, I thought it was a pretty solid issue. And, um, I mean, I don't know what else to say about Jamal Campbell's art. I mean, the guy is just fantastic and his art it gives it this this sense of um of scope and scale that's really interesting because he doesn't have like a like a letterbox style you know where everything is panoramic and he doesn't have a photorealistic style either but there's something about his story sensibility um that just makes this feel real cinematic. Um, so it's, it, it really, really works. I, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying this title and 
the only negative I'll say about it is, man, I was bummed out when we got to the end of the issue and it's like, oh, the story is going to be continued in the Superman annual and Superman number six coming in September because we have two months of night terrors coming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't get started on another night terrors rant, but anyway, give us your thoughts on uh, Superman number five. Uh, it's really good. And uh, I, it's, it's actually one of my initial regrets after reading it. And I, I got to say it, I got to repeat it that, you know, going into night terrors, just, just what a disastrous editorial decision to have that going into the summer here. It's just really, really stupid, really, really dumb to distract from these stories, to get into one of the most dumb one dimensional ideas in comics. And uh, it's been done to death. And who the hell asked for a Halloween special of uh, one shots over the summer holidays? It's just appalling. Whoever came up with those ideas, find them and fire them. Uh, but that's just my opinion. If uh, DC doesn't want to hire me because they don't want higher sales. So that's me being arrogant and conceited and like, but oh well. I do not apologize for it, but this issue I loved. Uh, Banshee, I love Silver Banshee. She's so adorable, isn't she? The flashback about between her and Jimmy. I think that was just, to me, that's just, I love I love a good love story, and Jimmy is finally getting some action. Good. I mean, this is really good. It's not just it's not just Lucy Lane that he sleeps with. It's actually the Silver Banshee. I mean, really, you can come up with all those jokes. Uh, I wonder if Jimmy has the ability to make her scream like one. Uh, but I'm sure Jimmy is quite happy. Um, although that that's got to be a little bit dangerous if he does make her that happy in the bedroom. But in any event, I. Did you catch at the end when Banshee is singing? The She's a lead singer in her band called the Banshees. And the very first words, she's up there on the stage singing, one, two, three, four, bow ties. I have a feeling that she's singing a song dedicated to her boyfriend, Jimmy Olsen. I thought that was, was kind of nice, kind of cool. And you didn't mention it. I'll mention it. Uh, what... what I like the plot point here. The plotting here by Williamson is really good. I like the fact that Superman has Jimmy uh, talk talk uh, Silver Banshee down in order to get her to scream into a, basically a Phantom Zone modulator that was within one of the sonic disruptor guns that uh, Superman took from Supercore. And ultimately, that... Silver Banshee screams so loud that it, it broke uh, uh, Professor Graff's and Farmer's hold on her, but it also was so loud that it made Superman deaf, and he's so deaf that he's lost his super hearing, and so when him and Lois go on a double date with Jimmy and uh, Silver Banshee, and, and or, or Siobhan, as her name is, they go on a double date, uh, that's just at that time Lex Luthor is being attacked in prison, and he's crying out for Superman, and of course... Uh, Superman can't hear what's happening to Lex Luthor. And that's a pretty good plot point because you got to wonder if Lex Luthor is going to think that's, is, that Superman is ignoring him. And uh, so it's it's interesting. And so it's going to add to the drama between uh, Lex and Superman. And you got to wonder if Graft and Pharma didn't plan that, that, that they maybe planned that that's how Superman was going to defeat or overcome uh, their hold on Silver Banshee. And it was all part of this master plan to, to have his hearing uh debilitated enough for them to launch an attack on Luther. Very, very clever. I like I like the thinking that Williamson has put into the plotting here because I'll be blunt, I don't think Williamson has ever really impressed me with his plotting, frankly, ever. 
<laughs> through Flash, through Dark Crisis, uh, although even through bits and pieces of Robin, it was kind of problematic. But there were, Robin was very fun. But this is this, is, this Superman is stories. Williamson is doing a, a, a better job here than he has on any other title he's worked on, in my opinion. And I'm I'm impressed. And uh, and there was humor. The art's fantastic. Jamal Campbell, my God, you're amazing. Keep it up. And I really I love the cover A. I love the cover A here with the sort of the vertigo effect with the silver banshee look. Cover B is fantastic, where it has a picture of Lex Luthor. It's all in red with the sort of a, a sort of a an off. Um, off-white, you know, surrounding of his, a profile of his face called The Villain Inside. I think it's a perfect thematic representation of the story, which I've always said have covers that reflect in some way uh, the content of the comic book. And that's exactly what they do in cover A and cover B. Uh, not so with the rest of the covers. Well, except for one of Silver Banshee kissing Jimmy. That was kind of nice. But yeah, overall here, I'm Williamson continues to impress me on this. Yeah, can, I can't remember the name of the group that Dr. Farm and Dr. Graft, we know they're brothers uh, and they're teamed up with some other mad scientists. They gave themselves a, a name in the first issue or the second issue whenever they showed up. And I can't, I can't remember it. It's I me, can't but, remember either. Yeah, too many. <laughs> too many. Anyway, too many. Uh, yeah, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Batgirl number, Batgirls number 19, the finale, final issue. Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad on the story. Robbie Rodriguez on the art, Rico Renzi on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Uh, I'm going to let you go first, Rock. What did you think about this? Uh, this is the this was one where I, I never. This is the only comic book that I read this week. Uh, you'll see the word bubble above my head, which encapsulates my feelings rather well. Finally, it's over, and um, I. People aren't going to believe me, but oh, I was going to say that the comic book isn't even popping up in front of me, but it just popped up now. Uh, sorry, bad bad images take time, but he, here we go. Um, yeah, th this thing is is finally over. Uh, this thing was 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 a miss from the get go. There was only a couple issues, and it's nineteen issue run. This is the final issue. Uh, this was uh, there was only a couple issues that I thought were were worthy of the of the characters. Uh, there was one issue with Lady Shiva, a couple issues with Lady Shiva in it, Lady Shiva in it, and Clue Master. That I thought that the Clue Rads, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, were finally maybe getting getting a, a head, trying to get a handle on the characters. But the rest of it here, it, it just doesn't really work. But having said that, this this is a wrap up to the storyline, which. You know, again, just has uh, the, the dealing with all the characters that they've introduced over the last nineteen issues. I, it, there's basically a, a podcaster named uh, Grace O'Halloran whose whose life is in danger. She initially had some doubts about the integrity of the bad girls. She came to be their best supporter, but there's, uh, I guess, there's a, one of the characters, Gunhawk, is is. Uh, or Gunhawk and this this lady is it Lady Bullseye is is wanting to kill or wanting to kill uh, Hawk and Gun Bunny Hawk and Gun Bunny right and I, I, I the, the whole thing just it, there's just no tension here I, I just don't it, it never really built any any I never cared one way or the other I never once felt that anybody was in any real danger here but again uh, look. The, the reality here is we have to remember that this series started off where in interviews, uh, in interviews, 
the the creative team actually gave the hint that they thought that the lead characters were 12 and 13 years of age. And then it was drawn by the artists as if these characters were 12, 12 and 13 years of age. But then we got serial killers and we got adult content and then they were drawn to look older like they were 16 or 17 years of age. This thing was all over the place uh, as, as, as a comic book and it, it's, it never has really found its footing. And uh, to the extent that it has, it was just an illusion. It really hasn't. I mean, look at it this way. Where is Batgirl now? She's she's gone from this to being a secondary character in Spirit World, for God's sakes. I don't really consider that a graduation by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm glad Cassandra Kane is there and no longer in here because she's not being well served here. At least maybe over in Spirit World, uh, Cassandra Kane can maybe, I don't know, talk to her dead father. Um, but uh, in any event, I'm glad this is over. I'm a gun hawk and gun bunny or sugar bunny or whatever her name is. I don't care, <laughs> but but I'm just glad it's over. This is a, this is a mercy kill. Uh, the art is probably a little bit better in this and previous issues, but either way, I'm just so glad this is over. And uh, it's it's I don't think Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad between their Wonder Woman and Batgirl's run. I, I I'm sure they. I wish. I wish they would have had a battle hander on, on both those uh, th- those characters, uh, but it wasn't meant to be. And I don't believe that they're doing any more work for DC. And I, I can't say I'm, I'm necessarily surprised because I don't think either title has been particularly well received. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, um, I agree <laughs> that neither title was uh, very well received. You know, what, we can argue whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. There were times where this series did work. There were times in Wonder Woman where it worked, but a lot of the times, like Rocky said, it was just really, really uneven. Um, and Becky Clunan's done fantastic work before. Uh, Gotham Academy was critically acclaimed and a big fan favorite. So, um, yeah, hard, hard to say uh, what went wrong. But regardless, uh, yeah, this sort of ends on a on a whimper. It feels sort of anticlimactic. I know it's supposed to feel emotional and and there are some nice moments in this, but in a way this issue is emblematic of of the entire run, right? There are moments that work, there are moments that are fun, there are moments um, that are entertaining, but overall you're left feeling that it's uneven, it's inconsistent, um, and you just don't care, you know? You're just like... Why am I re- like why am I reading this? What's the end game here? What there's no there's no goal, right? And I kind of said the same thing when we got to, to Wonder Woman. It's like it's supposed to land with impact, but it just it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Um and I I think you know part of the reason DC probably greenlit this series was to explore the relationship between uh Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane. There are some similarities there. You know, especially when you talk about where they've come from, right? Cassandra Kane being, uh, you know, the daughter of Lady Shiva, a villain, you know, trained to, to be a killer. You have Stephanie Brown, daughter of a, a supervillain. Um, you know, they've got baggage. So there's a lot to explore there. It, it felt, ultimately, this feels like a missed opportunity. And I won't put all the blame on the writers because, yeah, I don't think they ever had the right artist on this series to start with. So the tone of it was off from the beginning um just yeah a a a shame a disappointment because although i'm not the biggest stephanie brown fan 
there was opportunity here to, to, to do something with her, to do something special, especially with Cassandra Kane, who's, uh, has been very underutilized as a character over the last few years. So yeah, unfortunately I got to agree with Rocky that, you know, it, it's, I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's over. Um, I never, and again, I'm n nothing personal against a creative team, but this was never a book that I looked forward to reading. I was never like, Oh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen or, Oh, this is just really, really good. I'm really going to enjoy it. Um, it always just felt like, wait, what's, what's happening? What's going on with this art? So yeah, not, not one that I'll, uh, I don't own any issues. I didn't buy any of them. I can't ever see myself owning any of these. Issues. I don't even think I bought the first issue. So anyway, and move on to the final issue of Black Adam, issue number 12, written by Christopher Priest, Eddie Barrows on pencils, Eber Ferrer on inks, Matt Herms on colors, Willie Schubert on letters. Super interesting what they do here. We're left off last issue with a, a Black Adam who's been possessed. He's been possessed by not Sargon the Sorcerer, but like an AI version of Sargon the Sorcerer. Um, so leave it to Christopher Priest to go um, really meta and, and kind of out there, if you will, in terms of, of telling the story. Um, and in the end, Teth Adam is separated from the Black Adam powers for the first time in centuries. And he has the opportunity to merge back and chooses not to, which I found to be really interesting. Uh, and we're told at the end that this is not, not the end. There's more Black Adam to come. More Black Adam to come? Black Adam uh, without the humanity. And, you know, that's a bigger discussion to talk about what level of humanity or empathy or compassion Teth Adam ever had to begin with, you know, we know part of his anger and what have you was because of what happened to his son, you know, in ancient Egypt. But so you can argue how much humanity and empathy he would have anyway, um, based on the trauma and uh, horrible that he had even before he gained the powers of Black Adam. But then with centuries of the power of Black Adam, the guy was an out and out villain for a long time. DC certainly has... Uh, sort of cast him more as an anti-hero these days, but whatever amount of empathy or compassion, what little there might've been brought to the Black Adam persona by Teth Adam is now gone, right? Now it's Black Adam unleashed, Black Adam unchained. Um, so does that mean he's going to revert to his villainous ways? Does it mean he'll leave Earth altogether? Like we don't know. And is that the story when it says there's more Black Adam to come? Is that Does that mean we're getting more of the Teth Adam story? Are we getting more of the Black Adam separated from Teth Adam's story? Are we getting the story of them merging back together, realizing they need each other? We just don't know. Um, but if I have any nitpick about this particular issue, it's that all that comes in the last few pages. The rest of the time, we're sort of jumping around with this idea of Black Adam being possessed by this AR, AI version of Sargon the Sorcerer, which you know he, he displaced Teth Adam, and that's how he controls the powers. Um, we're getting uh, more of Malik and we're getting more of the Akkadian gods. And it's like um, at, at times in the series, it has felt not much like a Black Adam series, but rather a series about all the other supporting characters. And that's what we get at like the first three quarters of this issue before we finally start focusing on Black Adam. So uh, I sort of wish the entire series would have been a little more focused on Black Adam because 
the idea of Black Adam and Teth Adam being separated and and what that might matter, what's going to happen, that to me is more interesting than this story that we got. Um, so again, maybe I'm more looking forward to the next Black Adam story. I don't know. I guess we'll see. What were your th- uh, I, one other thing I will say uh, before I hand it off to Rocky, the art as has been throughout the series with uh, Eddie Barrels on pencils and Ibra Ferrer on inks has been just fantastic. Just amazing. Um, so I can't fault the, uh, the art at any point in the series. So uh, what'd you think, Rock? Uh, it, a hell of a lot happened in this final issue. I, I can't believe how much Christopher priest, I can't believe he did this. There's, I, I don't know whether or not to be really annoyed or pat him on the back because I'm more interested now. I don't want this to be over. Things are just ramping up. This, there was multiple cliffhangers here that happened. Multiple cliffhangers on, on for all these characters. I mean, this is, I thought this was amazing. I mean, this issue, last issue ended with the, with the Sargon AI mask taking control of Black, of Teth Adam as, as Black Adam. And then in this issue, Malik goes and takes the whip of Ibak, Ibak's whip, which has the ability to force a transformation of Black Adam, and he whips. He whips Black Adam, separating him from from uh, Sargon's AI mask, and somehow that rips apart Teth Adam from his Black Adam half. So the human Teth Adam is now separated from another version of uh, of Black Adam. I didn't know there was two versions of that. And how is that possible? Teth Adam himself says at the end he doesn't know how how it's possible how there's a floating Black Adam when he's Black Adam. How is that possible? Teth Adam himself not only doesn't know, he doesn't care. And it goes one step farther than that. One of the whole principles here is that uh, at the one of the ongoing subplots here is this Jasmine character who we were led to believe has feelings for Malik. Well, this Ishtar, this goddess Ishtar, the Arcadian goddess of love Ishtar, has been trying to tell Jasmine for a while, Jasmine, you're in denial. You really love Teth Adam, you don't love Malik. And Jasmine is saying, no, no, I don't. And at one point, Ishtar possessed Jasmine and kissed Black Adam. And Malik saw that. And Malik resents Black Adam for, for that. But one of the things that happens here, Jasmine approaches it, the goddess of love, Ishtar, and says to her and makes a deal with her. But we don't know what that deal is. But we can assume that she says... I will breathe you in, Ishtar. You can possess my body. So Ishtar possesses Jasmine's body with the, with the goal, I am guessing, to try to redeem Teth Adam because Teth Adam is riddled with guilt. He's been riddled with guilt for the role he played and the lives he, he feels he destroyed over the centuries of him being Black Adam. And at the end of this story, Teth Adam gives up. He doesn't want to be Black Adam anymore. And, and unfortunately, all that happened before Jasmine... Who, who is now really Ishtar, Ishtar, Black Adam is not redeemed. Teth Adam is not redeemed. Redemption hasn't occurred. Instead, Teth Adam is separated from Black Adam and Teth Adam doesn't have any power now. He's without the power of Black Adam and now Black Adam doesn't have the humanity of Teth Adam. So Black Adam is the blackest he's ever been and Teth Adam is sort of a wandering, guilt-ridden man who... who still requires some redemption because of all this guilt he harbors. And what is Jasmine going to do? Well, Jasmine, who is now 
who has allowed to be taken over by Ishtar is controlling her actions. They, I, we're not sure what's going to happen there. And also a very interesting thing that Malik does. Malik, at the end of this issue, when 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 Teth Adam refuses to become Black Adam again and merge with Black Adam, Teth Adam gets beat up by a bunch of street bums, and Malik sits there and watches him get beat. Watching, he watches Teth get beat up, and he doesn't do anything to stop it. He has contempt for Teth Adam. Malik is showing his darker side too, and. That tell, that's interesting as well. Malik's kind of being a jerk. He's letting Teth Adam get beat up because of he saw Teth kissing Jasmine. And I'm wondering if Jasmine really does have feelings for Black Adam because Ishtar warns Jasmine in this issue. Jasmine, you're in denial about your feelings for, for, for Teth Adam. For, and your denial is going to doom the world. So Jasmine, Jasmine needs to, at some level, help redeem Black Adam, but that doesn't happen in this issue. And we're at issue 12 and it's over. And now we're leading into something else. I'm, I'm really invested in this story now. And God damn, it's over. Why can't it be over? I want this. I want to know. I want to know what the next chapter is. I mean, my God. And not only that, just a quick note, people. Uh, we got another issue that we have another, we have a 13th issue of Black Adam, but it's Black Adam Night Terrors. That's going to be coming out next month. And Black Adam Night Terrors, is that going to be Teth Adams' nightmare? Is that going to be this actual Black Adams' nightmare? I don't know. So, I don't know. I got all these questions, but this, uh, I'm, I'm simultaneously so bloody frustrated with Christopher Priest, but damn if I'm not impressed with the way this ended, because I'm really invested in this story now. I just wish it wasn't over. <laughs> Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying. Like early on, it just felt like such an ensemble story telling all this other stuff that I kind of, I this is the story I want. I want. So anyway, hope, maybe we'll get more. Who knows? Uh, I can't imagine DC let them separate Teth Adam and Black Adam and don't have plans. So I guess we'll find out. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Catwoman number 56 from uh, writer Tinny Howard. Marcus Toe and Marco Santucci sort of split the art pages. ML Sanapo is credited with finishes for pages one through three. Veronica Gandini on colors and Lucas Catoni on letters. Um, so yeah, the final final part here of Rise and Revenge. Uh, what'd you think? Um, I, I continue to be uh, frustrated uh, with this, but first I want to give some compliments uh, to Sweeney Boo's art on the alternate cover it's a uh, cover b it's really nice i like uh dna's uh, uh cover a it's really good i have to say like as for cover buys catwoman is consistently always really really good there's a there's a wonderful uh shot uh i don't even know who the artist is but it's selena Kyle in an elevator looking hot as hell and uh, just yeah impressive and then there's the uh i think it's that the dodson team has a great uh has a great uh cover as well uh as for the story, this is part six of a Catwoman story arc called Rise and Revenge. I, I'll be straight up. Uh, we know from future solicitations that at some point Catwoman and Batman are going to get into a war with each other. And, uh, and this is, we already know from how, in, in my view, this Teeny Howard, she's made... Uh, she's making, in my view, a vain attempt to try to show that Selena Kyle is trying to, 
she has a game plan. Selena has a game plan to make Gotham a better place. And her game plan essentially involves her, I'm guessing, to take to almost become like a godmother of, Go- of, of Gotham City. But yet, she's not really a godmother. She's working behind the scenes. She's manipulating. She takes out Black Mask, this issue. Last issue, she made a deal. She forced an issue on uh, the Tomasi crime family uh, in consideration of her giving up her connections with respect to stolen property for fencing theft goods. And here she's she has Aiko. Uh, she's friends with Aiko, so... Aiko Hasegawa, so she's got ins on the Hasegawa crime family. Uh, there's also an, uh, a Drago, it, it wants, a, a Drago crime family, that's his first name, uh, Uchescu, Drago Uchescu, a crime family that uh, she's, uh, that Aiko has taken out in this issue. We got Dario taking, uh, taking out and battling his, his lover, uh, Dario Tommaso, uh, whose father is head of the Tommaso crime family. Dario takes on his uh, ex-lover, um, I can't even remember this issue. They have a battle. They battle it out. And Marquis, which was another inmate that Selena met in prison, has helped help Selena take out Black Mask here. I none of this really makes a lot of sense to me because we in in the first story arc that Tini Howard did, Black Mask, Catwoman took out Black Mask already. All the crime families uh, collaborate. It, it ult- ultimately ended up collaborating to take out Black Mask, to putting him in his place. Black Mask, we know, hates women. Black Mask, despite the fact that, I mean, he's... None of what Black Mask does, he, he seems to be... Uh, he, he he needs to have all this power, but in his way to get... His way of getting even with, with Catwoman is to attack all the places that have women working for them. So all these... The Kitty Cat Nightclub, the Milk Nightclub, the Trixie... Uh, the Black Mask is getting his vengeance on Catwoman by taking out all these women in these nightclubs and Selena seems to know that he's going to do that. Black Mask is really, really played like an utter fool. And look, I know that the Black Mask is a, is a, is an, is a world-class a-hole and I know that he's a misogynist, okay? I know that, but he's not an idiot. And when you make, your, when you make a super crime lord a complete idiot, I mean, I'm sorry, but just because he's a misogynist doesn't mean he's not at some level a genius because he is. You don't get to be a mafioso godfather at the level of Black Mask and not have a, a high degree of intelligence. This is the dumbest Black Mask has ever been portrayed by far. He's abjectly humiliated here and he does everything to get his mask back. And it, in my view, it it just doesn't work. I don't understand Selena's motivation here. I don't even understand what her end game is. She mentions it to Dario at the end. I guess she's got a war. I guess she hates the rich people. I guess this this she doesn't like the rich people. She she gives some speech at the end. She kind of tells Dario what her end game is. And she says, uh, until everyone has enough to eat, until people aren't stashing enough gold to build a school in their bank vaults. Until the wealthy feel it, feel it, and keep feeling it until the disadvantaged don't want to work as goons. What does that mean? Like, what, what's the game plan here? She doesn't like crime? She's a thief. She's a thief. She's a former prostitute protecting other prostitutes in bars who continue to be prostitutes after she's done protecting them. I don't know what her endgame is here. And now she talks at the end that she's going to run off and have a talk with Batman because Batman's part of her plan too. I don't see how Batman is going to agree to anything that Selena's done. I don't see how anything of what Selena done has made any sense. It never made any sense when she went to jail in the first place. 
And not only that, the, the one thing that blew me away, she actually says to Black Mask, instead of like, you know, if, if you're going to kill anybody, instead of killing Valmont, you would think she'd want to kill Black Mask. <laughs> but but no, she she actually tells Black Mask, she makes a deal with him and says, basically, if if, you know, rather than you staying in the shadows, Black Mask, I'll give you your mask back, but you can come up to the surface. You don't have to hide anymore, but you just got to be you got to do it bloodlessly. You can't kill anybody anymore. I mean, this is a deal she's making with Black Mask. I mean, that's like, I mean, really? I mean, as if that's going to have any impact on Black Mask. And why would Black Mask agree to that? And of course he doesn't. But yet she, she doesn't take him off the playing field. She doesn't actually do anything. I'm not really sure what her endgame is here. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And uh, it's just, I, I'm just completely baffled. Um... I'm, uh, oh my God. She, at one point, she actually says, um, uh, let me see here. Um, she has, um, oh, well, I, I don't want to harp on it. I, I lost my train of thought. Suffice to say, I'm, I'm not really following the, the, the line of thought that, that Teeny Howard is doing here, but I admire her goals. Uh, Teeny Howard, I'm going to give her props for thinking big and wanting wanting Selena to, to have more agency and more power. And just like Batman has his agenda for Gotham all the time, Selena has her own agenda too. So she's really, really putting her own foot forward. And she, she is controlling all the players here. She's controlling all the players. She's controlling the inmates. She's controlling the stray cats. She's controlling all the crime families. She's manipulated all of them. The only player on the board that she hasn't, she's even controlled the penguin. She took the penguin off the playing field. She didn't even tell Batman about that the penguin was taken off the playing field by going into the city. And that led that led to failsafe. And and now the only player she hasn't manipulated enough is Batman himself. And she says she's gonna do that at the end of this issue. You can see where her and Batman are gonna come to blows here. And that's kind of what I find interesting. I just don't like how we got there because it was really sloppy. But so I'm giving an underhanded compliment here that I am. I am invested to see how the hell Selena, what the hell Selena's plan is. It's messier than hell. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think Batman is rightly going to be pissed off. But uh, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, the, 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 the problem here is the narrative is choppy. And at times it's been really choppy. At other times it's slowed down. Like in the beginning, it felt like it was a little less choppy, a little more fleshed out. And we kind of understood Selena's decisions and our behavior and, and it made sense as this has gone on. And, you know, I don't know if the accelerated timeline because of night terrors or what have you, it feels like there's little parts of the story that are missing. Um, it feels like it jumps from, you know, one event to the next event in, in this storyline. And so it's hard to understand, like we never got a, in my mind, an adequate explanation for why Selena allowed herself to go to prison to be blamed for the death of uh, Valmont. And then it was never really a good motivation for why she just, you know, she's woke up one day and said, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to go rob and, and do what I do. I'm going to go out and be Robin Hood. I'm going to rob from the rich and give to the poor. Like the, the motivations for what she's doing aren't, they're not explained well enough in my mind. But I agree with you. Like the, the overall goal and what Tinny wants to do is is cool it's it's stick getting 
Catwoman getting Selena back in in that mafioso world, right? She should be one of the people that controls crime in Gotham because she's Catwoman and she's that formidable. So you can see why. And it's part of the reason that I never liked the Batman-Catwoman relationship. I don't think it works. Um, and I'm glad they're going to be at war. And I hope it means they'll never be together and never consider dating or being romantic ever again. I, I just don't like that relationship. Um, we know Tinney's working closely with Chip Sadarsky, the Batman writer, for this upcoming Batman-Catwoman war. So hopefully it flows a little more smoothly and it's not as choppy. Um, because, yeah, there's just – there's this is this story's almost there. But it just – I don't know if it's not having enough space, but it's a problem of pacing. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because this has so much potential. And I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, it's just not as good as it could be. Yeah. It feels like there are pieces of the story that we're missing, especially when it comes to reasons why Selena's doing what she's doing. This, this title is is Catwoman, right? Like we should have some insight into who she is and why she's doing what she's doing, and we don't. It's more like this is two years worth of Batman story that we have Catwoman doing something in, right? Like if you took – 24 issues of Batman and you had a subplot with Catwoman planning something yeah. where it's not fleshed out because it's the Batman. Why would you be focused on Catwoman? Yeah. That's what this feels like. It feels right. like it's not a Catwoman book because we're not getting, even though a lot of times Tinny's writing in first person, Catwoman is the one narrating this book. Um, but we don't get any reasons behind the decision she's making. She tells us what she's thinking, but we don't know why. And if I don't know why she's thinking that, then I don't know why I'm supposed to care that she's well, thinking that. I, I just to I just to add to that, you know, we spend so much time in the early early arcs, you know, leading to what we thought was going to be a big confrontation between Catwoman and Punchline, and nothing came of it. She let she lets Punchline go, and we're not really really told why. And then and then she takes out Black Mask twice now, and lets him go. I mean, you're letting a murderer go, a psychopath go, hey, who wants to kill all your. All your, uh, uh, you know, all your girls, all you, that you love, and all those nightclubs that you think you're protecting, even though you know they're whoring themselves in all the nightclubs. I mean, really, Selena, you're a thief. Who are you kidding? And you and you and you hate the rich, but you steal millions of dollars from them. I mean, I mean, I mean, the hypocrisy here is unbelievable. But I can accept that because I ex expect hypocrisy from a flawed character like Catwoman. That's what makes Selena Kyle interesting. But this idea that somehow she, I mean, she's actively aiding and abetting knowingly abetting guy people like punchline and black mask by keeping them in power i mean that is something that i mean at some point batman has to get his head out of his ass and say you know what enough you're going down selena you're worse than the bad guys because you're keeping the bad guys in power but anyways uh, anyways it, it can I, I admit it can lead to a very interesting story if chip sardaski and uh, Teeny Howard do it right, but nothing's going to change the fact that forcing Selena Kyle to this end, it didn't work as a story, but whatever, I'll accept it now and hopefully we'll have some lipstick on the pig. Yeah, but Batman doesn't take villains off the game board for a long period of time either. But at least I mean, they're at Arkham Asylum. At least he's not letting them on the street. He needs to make yeah. it a token attempt. At least they're in Arkham <laughs> Asylum for a week or a few days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I can all, the argument can be made that what Selena does is is actually worse in terms of like a little bit of a torque. Like she beats Black Mask 
and then lets him off the hook. And she beats him again and takes his masks away and drives him even more insane and then gives it back with Graves saying, I'll always be watching. In a way, you could say it's almost psychological torture, worse than capturing him and putting him in Arkham because it's like you're leaving him his freedom, but he's always going to be looking over his shoulder. So I get what you're saying, but on the other hand, just to play devil's advocate, you could be, is it more powerful to say, you matter so little to me, I'm not even going to lock you up. Because any, (laughs) she tells him that, right? Like, hey, if you step out of line, I'll take that mask away from you again. You're that much weaker than me that I can do whatever I want. Like, to me, that is, that's pretty Catwoman-ish, right? Like, she's, he's like just a little toy that she plays with. Just a little cat toy. I'll come and take him whenever I want. You don't scare me. You're not a danger. You're not a threat. So I can, I can kind of see that. I can, I can respect that. That's, that's kind of interesting. But again, it, I, I think it's just a fault of pacing and, you know, that comes with experience and, and Tindy's been around for a while, but you know, it's, it's different when you play around in a, in a shared universe where, you know, like I said, maybe it's very well uh, that the night terrors and she, she lost some issues she was going to have, you know, that she, when she originally plotted it out. So I don't know. Uh, well, let's move on. I'm really curious to hear Rocky's thoughts on this next issue. Because I think, uh, in a word, what he felt about the first issue was that it was boring. Uh, so Titans number two, written by Tom Taylor. Incredible art by Nicholas Scott. Just absolutely incredible art. Annette Kwok handles the colors. She works with uh, Nicola a lot. Wes Abbott handling the colors. And, uh, yeah, Rocky, what were your thoughts on this issue? Um, same as the uh, first one, actually. Not, not significantly different. In fact, I... Uh, I got very little. I didn't take any notes on the Batgirls issue because there's nothing to say. And this issue was just utterly boring to me. I I just uh, beautiful art, fantastic. But I guess I just uh, I really was hoping for. I'm really hoping for more. And I'm gonna go so far as to say uh, this was uh, for most disappointing of the week. It was a toss up between this one and Nightwing. Straight up, I just I, I just I'm starting to realize that uh, well. It was my fear, and it's been said by others about we've been talking about it. Great character work, great dialogue, but just just really boring plotting. And uh, there's hints here at a more interesting plot. I mean, I, I will say that the idea that uh, the idea that that Wally West is not really dead. That at the end of last issue, he went on a before he died, he went on a cosmic treadmill. He traveled all the way into the past, and so a future Wally West died in the past, so that. Teen Titans so that the Teen Titans now know that Wally West in the present is still alive and the future Wally West is now dead. His corpse is dead in front of them. So they know that at some point in the future, Wally is going to be killed. And so now their goal is to protect Wally West. And the entire issue is just a bunch of conversations. And uh, they they end up going to fight. Uh, you know, they, they go into the... They go and fight a forest fire in Borneo. I mean, I'm not even making this up. And the forest fire is caused by a Tamaranian blast. Somebody used a Tamaranian blast to start a forest fire. And at the end, Tempest is found to... A brother Blood is on a PR campaign to... He's starting a new religion. And... Uh, sorry? Brother Eternity. Changed his name. Brother Eternity. Sorry. Uh, so, so he's different now. <laughs> That's sarcasm. But uh, Brother Blood slash Brother Eternity is now starting a new religion, uh, which is, I, I guess, different than the one he started back in the 80s uh, under Wolfman and Perez. And 
anyways, I just, this might be going somewhere. I mean, Tempest is now a spokesman for Brother Eternity and maybe this will go somewhere. It's, uh, it's this is going to fracture the Titans. Uh, I, this is once again where Tom Taylor has taken what the assignment and I guess I, as the reader, thought the assignment was different. I thought this was supposed; these were supposed to be Justice Leaguers. This feels like Titans. This feels like Teen Titans. This feels small. This this doesn't feel like it's a big deal to me. Now, don't get me wrong. Wally West being killed at some point in the future is kind of a big deal. But oh my God, what a retreaded plot point! It was not an original plot point, so it's hard for me to get excited. But I let me just backtrack here. I don't want to sound like a negative Nelly, okay? Because uh, I'm not the writer, and the, the the story here, okay, the story here is what it is, and the art is really, really good, and this, this might be an intriguing plot, but we've got no exciting resolution on anything of a plot resembling an interesting plot over a Nightwing. We still don't this week, and we'll review night, the next issue of Nightwing after, after we were done reviewing this, <laughs> and this was just, this was, I mean, Titans, they fought a Congratulations, the Titans took out a giant gorilla in issue one, and in this issue, they battled a forest fire. Wow. Um, this, hey, I mean, if this is the extent of the powers of the new Justice League protecting the Earth, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. This this is really, really, this is a boring plot to me. I was really hoping for something more interesting. What? Where's the challenge here? Where? Where is it? I, I, I don't see it. And I'm not sure, but maybe Brother Eternity is going to, you know, have this new religion is going to brainwash half the planet or maybe something. I guess maybe maybe it's we've had so many crises in the last five years. I keep thinking big, 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 big. And maybe I just got to I got to wipe my mind clean. And maybe this is this is just a character driven story where, you know, some minor villain is going to be the one that 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 killed Wally West and they'll discover him. It's going to be a minor thing. It's going to be quickly resolved. I don't know, but I. I personally, as much as I love the art, I really, I was very, very disappointed in this. Uh, I'm not, the art is really fantastic, but this is, this is just plain boring to me. This is a very quick read. And uh, look, I, you know, I'm, I, I would strongly recommend people wait for the trade and, and wait till you hear what people say, because it wouldn't surprise me. Based upon what we've seen in Nightwing, we could get to the end of the sixth issue here and nothing's happened. I mean, it wouldn't bother. It would. It wouldn't. Wouldn't surprise me at all. What's going to happen? I mean, we're going to get a lot of conversations, a lot of touchy feely moments. But are we going to get a? Are we going to get a plot? Are we going to get a resolution? Are we going to get? Are we going to get some wow moments? Other than you know, oh, Wally West was shot. Um, is that why Jeremy Adams was was taken off Flash? It makes me wonder because they needed to kill Wally in this issue. I don't think so, but in any event, it just it's not bad. It's great character work. I just find the plot really boring, you know. So take that for what it's worth. But I, I continue to be in, enormously underwhelmed with Taylor's writing. Uh, with I mean, he's he's it's like he's forgotten to write ex, how to write exciting plots. Uh, for all the DC comics, and uh, and even uh, Dark Knights of Steel seems to be heading toward ending on a whimper, and it's it's really really disappointing. And um, at this at this mark, if this keeps up, man, I I'd be compelled to I'd seriously consider not buying the physical copies and just waiting for the trades because it's just it this isn't it's not even a must read. And I hate I hate to, I hate to maybe I'm an outlier on that, but 
man, this was a disappointment to me. You're a huge huge outlier. The first issue sold like gangbusters, critical, critical acclaim from everybody that I saw. (laughs) I guess. Um, I think, yeah, you said it yourself. Like this is supposed to be the justice league. Well, I I would argue like I get that was Williamson's thing. That was Joshua Williamson's idea. Let's take the justice league off the table. You know, it's going to be Titans, whatever you said it yourself. When you read this story, it's Titans. It's Titans with the emotionality and the relationships and, and, you know, seeing the human side of these characters that has been traditionally the teen Titans, especially when you talk about the classic Wolfman Perez era of the series. Um, and that's what this is. It's, it's exactly what I expected to be. It's exactly what I expect a Titans title to be. Uh, yeah. Are they fighting Despero or Starro or dark side or what have you? No, no, but guess what? On on the trade dress, it says Titans. It doesn't say Justice League. I don't want this to be Justice League. I, I don't think it ever will be Justice League, not with these characters, regardless of what Joshua Williamson said. So I can only go by what is in the book. I'm not going to judge the book by what it's not. I'm going to judge the book by what it is. It has incredible art. It has incredible character work. I can't say that anything super exciting has happened yet. But we're only two issues in and the seeds have been planted, whether it's the relationship with uh, with Beast Boy and Raven, which is just starting to be explored here. Obviously, it's been explored a lot in the YA line. Wally West, the future, this future Wally West having been murdered. That's interesting. Oh, my God. The Tempest moment when he's revealed when when Brother Blood, formerly Brother Eternity, formerly known as Brother Blood, says, oh, yeah, I have I have a Titan. You know, this is this is where my street cred comes from. This tells you that I've I've turned over a new leaf. We know that Garth rebuffed the invitation to join this version of the Titans from from Dick Grayson, right? Like from the the Titan. Um, and so for him to turn it down, like what the heck else does this guy think he's doing that he's busy with? That he's going to turn down the Titans, and then for them all to be watching on TV when he you know walks out on stage, backing up Brother Eternity. That's interesting to me. There's there's not really anything boring about that to me. That that's great character drama. That's great seeds planted for what's going to come in in the future. Um, so yeah, I I am enjoying this. I enjoyed the first couple of pages where we saw the the Titans, you know, after clearly a, a little bit of an investigation and a, and an adventure, what have you, to go take out Brother Blood, uh, and they go and they break into his. Uh, his headquarters there and there's all the justice league, like, you know, polishing them off. Uh, and there's some funny moments there. Where they're talking about, is this allowed? Are they allowed to take out like brother blood is our villain? Like, are they allowed? Whatever. There's justice League. they're allowed to do whatever. So yeah, I, I get what Williamson was saying. They're supposed to be taking the place of the justice league, but just, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want the Titans to take the place of the justice league in terms of being the team to sort of protect the earth. That doesn't mean they become the justice league. It doesn't mean they start acting like those characters. I, I still want them to be the Titans. The, these characters are still being true to who they are. They're not going to suddenly change. You know, Dick Grayson's not suddenly going to start acting like Batman uh, just because Joshua Wimson said this is the Justice League. Now, I, I get what you're saying. Like, if this, if if they are sort of the de facto Justice League because it doesn't exist right now, and people pick this up thinking. Well, I'm expecting world level threats every issue because it's the Justice League. You know, Justice League Detroit existed. 
And that was certainly wasn't world-beating <laughs> villains every time. And you could even go back before then in the early 80s. Uh, there were plenty of Justice – I remember there was a, a three-issue series where the Justice League got uh, – they they were going to investigate this like underground fighting gladiatorial where people were like mixed with animal DNA and they would become like half animal and they would fight for all these rich people, whatever. Um, and that, that was corny as hell. Uh, amazing art by Chuck Dixon. He was the one that, that drew it, but that that's not world level threat. You know, you I, could make I, the argument more exciting than that. Do you remember that, that three part story that I'm talking about? Uh, n- not specifically, but uh, is that what, what's it called again? It was in the Justice League of America. I'll send you the. I can't remember the issue numbers, but I'll send you the. I'll send you the numbers. I'm sure you read it way back in the day. But probably. But yeah. I, I, I take your point. Like, well, I, I think what's going to happen here is that th- this first scene where the Titans show up in the past and that Justice League has already taken out Brother Blood. This this arc will end, or an issue issue twelve of Titans will end with the Justice League showing up. But the Titans handling Brother Blood. So everything's going to come full circle. So this scene is going to tie into the final scene and when this arc's finally over. Maybe. Um, I'll go you one better. You, you 100% could be right, but it could be the Titans taking out Darkseid. Maybe Darkseid's the one that killed Wally West. Right? Because that would be cool. The, yeah, if the Titans were taking out Brother Blood, well, that's their villain anyway. They need to take out somebody that's where the Justice League's like, whoa, that's our villain. And these guys are taking him out. So... And yeah. and yeah, I get it. Like fighting a forest forest fire in Borneo is not the most exciting, but again, the art was fantastic, and it was it was cool to see them work together. But I, I take your point. If people are, if you're picking this up, thinking, yeah, this is Justice League level. This is not Justice. This is still Titans. This is still a book that's driven by the relationships of the characters. So, uh, and I, I that's what I'm expecting, and so maybe that's why I'm not finding it uh, lacking like you are. So yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. No argument, though, that the uh, Nicola uh, Nicola Scott art is absolutely uh, fantastic. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, I'm I'm sort of not surprised to hear your <laughs> thoughts. Uh, you didn't care for the next book we're going to talk about, Nightwing number one hundred five, also written by Tom Taylor. Bruno Redondo is the artist. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. I. I'm going to have you go first so we can end on a positive note. I have a feeling I liked it more than you. <laughs> well, no, first no, of all, no, no, let no, me no. give let me give a high compliment about this is actually an issue where this is actually a lot of fun this issue because it's all artistically redundant, you know, Bruno Redondo does an amazing job and every single panel is from the perspective of Nightwing. That's what's so amazing. I mean, I mean, imagine waking up and you, the first thing you see is the beautiful redhead Barbara Gordon in front of you uh, and then have it disrupted by having being licked to death by Bitewing. I mean, that, that that's how this uh, this has, that's how this comic book opens up. And it's fantastic. It, it really is. There are multiple scenes where you see the perspective of Nightwing I mean, and it's done through mirrors where you can see you're seeing what you're seeing what Dick Grayson sees. And it really works fantastic. Fantastic, and it's such a it's such a creative way to do it. I mean, even when he's staring at Barbara Gordon, he's about to put on his mask. She's at the window, dressed as Batgirl, about to take off. They're gonna hop a hop a train because they hear that Double Dare has stolen some 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 secret whatever nuclear stuff and or some and it they end up they end up fighting Double Dare or one one of the Double Dares and. Uh, 
this uh, Aliki, Aliki and Margot Marceau are, are doubled there. And Aliki is trying to save her sister Margot. And Barbara Gordon ends up having to impersonate um, uh, Aliko Marceau, one of the one of the double dares, as they uh, basically <laughs> try to avoid themselves getting killed because uh, Aliko Marceau has the a cure to a disease uh, in, in from the the town of uh, from the city of uh, the country of Vlatava. Uh, they want to they want to get a hold of her because she's got the cure to a disease in her bloodstream, and uh, the, the head of a pharmaceutical company who is in fact heart uh, heartless, uh, this heartless character who finally under Lyle Shelton the heart we know that his name is Lyle Shelton he's the head of the CEO of this pharmaceutical company uh, the Shell pharmaceutical company he's the one that is utilizing and, and controlling the pharmaceuticals and the cure and and jack, jacking up the price and controlling the flow of the cure into this uh, country of Latava. And a lot of corruption there. And this leads to a confrontation between Dick Grayson and Lyle Shelton. And Dick Grayson, or Nightwing rather, does not know that Lyle Shelton is heartless. And it, it's a hell of a confrontation. And the dialogue's a little corny there. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's, I think this is our first clue that, that Tom Taylor, everybody has been complaining, or a lot of people, a lot of voices around the internet have been complaining, where the hell is Heartless? Let's finish the Heartless storyline. Why isn't Nightwing taking Heartless down? Where's Heartless? Well, Heartless is the new blockbuster, and he's not going to be taken down in, I don't think he's, I don't think that Lyle Shelton, aka Heartless, is going to be taken out uh, in a six-issue story arc, or 12-issue, or 24. I think he's the new mafioso. He's the new blockbuster, but he's blockbuster. He's not as stupid as blockbuster. He's going to be there a while. He, he's he's methodical. He's planning. He's not an idiot. Uh, he might be an a hole, like Nightwing calls him at the end, or Mister Hole. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the fact remains is that uh, Lyle Shelton is intelligent, and remember that in the Nightwing Annual, Lyle Shelton was raised by his own Alfred, and there was a juxtaposition between Nightwing's relationship with Alfred, Alfred being his father figure, and Lyle Shelton had his own father figure, but his father figure was obviously darker and more corrupt. And so, in many ways, we got the dark and the light side of Nightwing and and Heart and Heartless had being raised in very different types of upbringings, uh, and they're they're they're. I guess their own journey. Uh, everyone's a hero in their own journey, and their hero's journey. They're about to hit an intersection, and so, I so this issue was actually, I, I think, very very well paced, very well scripted, very well done, and uh, the the art makes this uh, makes this really really good, and the way that it it led to the to the reveal of Lyle Shelton because his first appearance here is Lyle Shelton. He looks like an attractive blonde. He looks like a, a tall, dark and blonde, handsome Bruce Wayne. And he's a head of this pharmaceutical company and, and leave it to Nightwing to not be intimidated by Lyle Shelton because Nightwing is used to hanging around with uh, philanthropist billionaires and he, he's become one himself. And so all in all, I thought this was a very, this was a very good issue artistically, and uh, it it was entertaining. This was far more entertaining than I thought than than the Titans issue was. And so I really just have positive things to say. Plot wise, this do we still it's snail pacing forward, but 
it, we get a hell of a good introduction, uh, sort of a reintroduction into a new face for Heartless, which I think works very well. And again, kudos to Bruno Redondo and Adriana Lucas on the colors. Wow. So I thought you didn't, that was a very positive review. I, I know. Well, I don't, well, hey, I surprised you. <laughs> you did. You, you, yeah. You, the way you talked about Titans and you're like, oh, the problems with not we. So I actually probably going to have the more negative. First of all, I'll hundred percent agree with you. Look, if I take my glasses, I could be like, I'm, I'm putting that mask on. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Like, this is what I'll say. Like the second sort of, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word gimmick. Cause that makes it sound like it's like a cheap trick or whatever. Um, but the second time that Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo have given us something really sort of special and unique, right? Like we had the, the previous issue of Nightwing where it was just one long panel uh, and DC even had um, some printer like publish it or print it as one long comic, right? That just unfolded, told half the story on one side and you flipped it over as the other half of the story. Um, so this is the second time they've given us something really unique. As Rocky said, the entire issue, every panel, all the art is drawn from their perspective where as the reader, we're looking out through Nightwing's eyes. We're seeing what he's seeing. And it's absolutely fantastic. And it's amazing. And it's paced really, really well. And it's a fun story. But at the end of the day, it doesn't advance the overall plot of what's been going on other than having Heartless show up uh, in his civilian um, guise, his civilian identity. And that was great. And that was good to put in there because it did feel like at least we got something. Because it does feel a little bit like we're sacrificing momentum for the overall series in order to have this really cool art device, if you will, instead of a plot device, it's an art device. And the reason to buy this issue is a hundred percent to see the amazing art. Does this advance the relationship between Dick and Barbara? No. Does it advance what's going on between uh, the relationship between Dick and his sister, who's now the mayor or, or is the mayor of Bloodhaven? No. Does it advance anything Titans-wise with the Titans headquarters now being in Bloodhaven? No. What it does is it introduces kind of a one-and-done story with Double Dare and the vaccine that Rocky alluded to, I was talking about, um, and gives Bruno Redondo a chance to do something really, really cool. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I don't fault that. It's great to see. It's great that it exists or what have you. Uh, I think presenting a story in this way is, is again, fun, but you, because of the sort of limitations of, of what they chose to do, it does, we, we're told at the end what happens with Double Dare rather than being seen, right? Because Nightwing's not there. So we're not going to flash over to what's going on with Double Dare and with, uh, with Barbara Gordon because Nightwing's not there and it would it would sort of break the illusion of, of what we're having. But because of that, it does feel like the ending, like we missed something, right? Like we missed the resolution of double dare and are they going to go, do they go and get the vaccine to the people that need it? Do they not? And that sort of thing. So I, I was a bit disappointed that that part of the story, that resolution we sort of missed out on, right? Like we're, we're just, he goes to confront the pharmaceutical nightwing goes to confront the pharmaceutical company, finds out it's heart. He doesn't know it's heartless, you know, uh, talks to heartless in, in his civilian identity. And the rest of the story resolves on its own off panel. And then when Dick meets back up with Barbara, then we're told what happens. 
you know, it's always problematic when you're told rather than shown or, you know, a chance to experience it yourself. So that was my only disappointment in the issue. Um, and it's a minor nitpick because overall uh, I loved it. Um, but yeah, I take your point, Rocky, <clears throat> that it, this, this entire series, it's never moved at a very fast pace in terms of overall plot. I mean, this is issue 105. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it was 81? Was the first- <laughs> I, I think it was 81, yeah. Or yeah. I think it was something like that. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere around issue 80. So yeah. we're, we're, we're two years in at this point. Yeah. And we did get a resolution on the blockbuster story. Uh, we haven't gotten a resolution on the Heartless story, but I think you're right that Heartless is the new blockbuster and is just going to be around. It's, you know, think of Heartless as as um, version. Yeah, yeah, Lex Luthor, Kingpin, yeah. where he's just going to be sort of behind the scenes, um, and Nightwing's not going to be able to capture him because um, he's going to be pulling off, you know, different things, getting other people to do his dirty, dirty work. Uh, and I, I'm curious. I wonder if. That was Taylor's initial plan for the character or if something changed because we haven't actually seen him as heartless getting his hands dirty himself in quite a while. So yeah, a little bit mixed feelings on, on Nightwing overall, but it's clear these guys are, um, they're having a lot of fun on this title doing things like, you know, one giant panel or, uh, or this perspective through the eyes of Nightwing. There'll be a lot of people talking about this. Um, but again, I don't want to give them a complete pass because it is so brilliantly uh, illustrated that there's you know nothing wrong with the with the story um, because yeah it, it does need to start picking up or or if not like then give us smaller stories give him smaller challenges to overcome because it does feel like we've been treading water for a little while uh, yeah I did not expect me to have the more negative of the two reviews. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Batman White Knight presents Generation Joker number two. This is Sean Gordon Murphy verse. Sean Murphy's credited with the story. Katana Collins and Clay McCormick handle the script. Mirka Andolfo on art. Alejandro Sanchez on colors. Um, and there's no... Oh, there it is. DC Hopkins on uh, letters. So I, I don't really have much to say on here. We all know that I'm not a Joker fan, even if you take him over to the Sean Gordon Murphy verse. It's not particularly interesting um, seeing him spend his AI illusionary self spend time with his two kids is not really that interesting or compelling to me. Um, his kids zap him at one point uh, because they find out that supposedly some other bat villain that was killed in Arkham has been resurrected. So they immediately start thinking, Hey, we can bring our dad back. Like he put so much trauma even when they call him dad, he's surprised. So it seems a strange choice. Maybe they're just thinking about it in terms of, hey, this will make our mom happy and we really care about our mom. I don't know. I don't understand the motivation there. Um, and after they zap, they zap their dad and he's no longer you know, physically manifested or they can't see him anymore, then a bunch of jokers show up, the, the, uh, the gang jokers with a Z. Um, and start chasing them and they're trying to drive the Batmobile. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me either. Um, how one kid's on the floorboard pushing the gas pedal with his hand and the other one is able to drive the car. It's, uh, I get it. It's comics, but yeah, it was problematic for me. And then the jokers catch up with them and then 
They're about to beat the crap out of them. They go, oh, by the way, we're the Joker's kids. Oh, and then they're all bowing down and all hail the Joker's kids, the true leaders of the Jokers. It, it made me groan, honestly. Like, it, it, this is just, this comic is not for me. <laughs> there was nothing remotely interesting about it. Um, I mean, the art by Mirka Andofel is fine, but I expect that. Mirka Andofel is an incredible artist. Um, the most enjoyable moments for me in the book were um, getting the little bit of um, of Bruce Wayne and, and the Sean Gordon Murphy verse of Wally West. Um, and, and what that might entail, what's going on there, whatever mission it is that these, uh, this secret agency uh, has for Bruce Wayne. Uh, cause we do see John Stewart as a member of that agency as well. Um, that part is more interesting, but it's, it, I mean, it's a few panels, uh, the, the jokers and the kids stuff is, yeah, it's just not, it's just not for me. It's not bad. It's just not for me, uh, and I have a feeling you probably enjoyed it a lot more than I did. So, what are <laughs> I did. You, you're just wow! You're just so negative on this comic. Okay, well, yeah, I, I do. I do find it hard. <laughs> we, did say, we knew this coming in, right? When we said, "Okay, <laughs> I mean, the name of it's Generation Joker," and we all know how yeah. I feel about the Joker. Yeah, it's not a surprise. Well, I, I actually enjoy this Joker more than I'm not a huge Joker fan myself, but I, I've I've enjoyed the Murphy verse, and I. I I frankly enjoy Murphy's Sean Gordon Murphy's uh, interpret iteration of the characters more in this universe, and in particular, I actually really like Bruce Wayne's interaction with Agent Wally West. Here, he uses kind of a Vulcan a Vulcan nerve pinch to put Wally Agent Wally West to sleep here as he as he sneaks off to try to help his kids. You know, he he needs to help Harley uh, with a family because he needs to run off with a family issue, and presumably that's to help uh, Harley look for their uh, look for Jackie and Bryce, uh, Harley and the Joker's uh, children. Now, uh, I actually, I actually quite enjoyed this, and I, I actually, the the adventures that these kids are having with their father, uh, you know, Jack Napier. Uh, I mean, Jack Napier as the Joker, he's only got one week of existence left because he's basically a glorified holographic algorithm, and he's got one week before he dissipates and disappears. And what the Joker wants to do is take his kids, and he ultimately takes them to a graveyard, and where he wants to show the kids who he really was. He wants his kids to know that he wasn't always an angel; that he was kind of a uh, psycho, a serial killer. He wants to be honest about who their who he was as as a father, and he wants to open up to them about who he was in the past. But his kids, I mean, uh, ironically enough, a lot of parents try to hide their darker side from their children. And here we have the Jack Napier wanting to be very open with his kids about who he is before he dies. He wants them to find out the truth from him as opposed to anyone else from maybe social media or all the likes. He takes them to a graveyard and they see all these other graves. But what they also see is that they see that the Joker admits to them, their father admits to to, to Bryce and Jackie saying, look, I, I killed the rogues gallery. You know, he, he took out the Riddler. He took out the ventriloquist. He took out, he took out a lot of villains uh, and they see a lot, the gravestones of a lot of them, except two faces missing. And then they stumble upon information that there's a rumor going around that there's some new technological advancement uh, that is somehow resurrecting Batman's old rogues. And so they figure, well, Hey, maybe we can resurrect our dad. Maybe, maybe you don't have to die in a week. And that's kind of a big deal. Meanwhile, I really like that we get a flash. We, we get information. We get Agent Diana Prince and Agent John Stewart. <laughs> They're working together, and I really like. You can see already. I'm more interested in this version of Wonder Woman uh, than we are in the one we have in, in the mainstream DC universe. This is a. She makes it very clear to John Stewart that look, 
We are going to protect the children. The protection of the children come first. We protect the children. We're going to protect the Joker. And, you know, John Stewart's thinking, well, I thought we have to protect the program. We got to protect. No, we protect the kids. Right away, you're seeing that this is a Diana that I wonder what her background is. Is she secretly an Amazon? What's her background? I'm really curious to know who this Diana is. It's almost as if this agent Diana Prince has an agenda of her own uh, because she's very, she's very confident and yet she's respectful and Agent John Stewart, I mean, he, he knows who his superior officer is. That's quite clear. Uh, and I love, she's got a red, red star necklace. I thought that, I, I thought that's a nice touch. All these little hints that these are uh, iterations of heroes from the mainstream universe. Very, uh, I really, really like that. And uh, just, you know, at the end with the kids stumbling upon Joker's uh, former goons, and they might end up with Joker's former goons finding a renewed reason to exist because now that the Joker's kids are around, they can help protect the kids. And so Jackie and Bryce, by the time their mother Harley Harley and Neil find them, they're going to discover that the kids have a, whole, a gang all, all their own. And anyways, I'm having a lot of fun here. I'm having a lot of fun. This, this almost has... This reminds me a little bit, Jackie and Bryce's adventures, it reminds me a little bit of the Super Sons, I'm not going to lie. I, I have that much joy reading this, and they got a psychopathic father, or one with a dual personality, they got a crazy, form, you know, Harley Quinn's their mother looking for them, and they got Bruce Wayne who's going to try to look for them, they got Agent Diana Prince and Agent John Stewart looking for them, they got a passed out Agent Wally West, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces coming into play here, and we're just at issue two, so... So I'm in this for the long haul, and uh, I'm convinced. But by the end of this, you're gonna you're gonna be a fan of this series. <laughs> really, you think? Yeah, so? I think you are. I think you are. I think you're gonna come on board. Yeah. There's two more issues. It's a four issue. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a bold right, prediction. Well, I know. Let's move on to the last book we're gonna talk about in detail. Uh, Superboy: The Man of Tomorrow, issue number three. Writ, uh, written by Kenny Porter, uh, Genoi Lindsay handles the art and colors, Lucas Catoni on letters. This is a lot of fun. Um, seeing Connor take on the, the coons here. Um, <laughs> right at the beginning, he's talking about surfing on the top of a, uh, a spaceship, smashing an enemy ship. Well, got to be one of his top 10 coolest moments. And then when one of the coons comes out and um, he, he says, I, uh, are you did you come out here to get a you know better look uh at what's going on i i can't hear what you're saying over the sound of me smashing your ship and the guy's like ah you know i, I hear you you're surprisingly arrogant for a dead man and the, just the banter back and forth is uh is really really funny um toward the end of the issue it appears that travis one of the cosmeteers is set to betray not only superboy but other members of the cosmeteers so what that entails, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and then as far as Dominator X, who's been sort of the big bad, this uh, purple skin Dominator rather than the traditional yellow skin, who has been harvesting the DNA of um, of different aliens that have, that have abilities and sort of splicing them together to create bioweapons, um, he gets banished by the other Dominators. They're like, no, 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 you're too far out there. The things you've done have only rather than bringing us weapons, you've just brought us more enemies. Uh, and so they banish him and uh, kind of as a last act of desperation, he dumps everything he has left, all the DNA samples or whatever into one creature and he calls it infinity. So it's going to have to be some, you know, uber powerful 
creature and maybe the maybe Travis will have to mend his ways and and truly make peace with Superboy instead of just pretending to do so um, and need the help of the other Cosmeteers and everyone will have to work together in order to defeat this uber powerful uh, villain. So if all that sounds like a story that's been told before, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, but I'll give credit to Kenny Porter for making this fun and giving it the, the feel. I never read a lot of the classic Superboy run back in the day where he was in Hawaii, King Shark showed up and all that. Um, but I, I know um, just from his appearance in other books and from kind of context uh, over the last decade, two decades since that series has come out, that, that that series was a lot of fun. It was lighthearted. It was a lot of fun. And I think Kenny Porter is channeling that here. Um, the art by Lindsay, it's a little kinetic. It's a little loose for my taste, but it's certainly grown on me. And it definitely suits the tone of the story that Kenny Porter is trying to tell. So. So overall, I'm enjoying this, even though it feels like it's going to be, like I said, not not the most original big ideas. The execution is done so well. Um, and I just, I love the banter that Kenny Porter brings, whether it's Superboy bantering with a coon, whether it's the Dominators in judgment on one of the other Dominators and they're throwing barbs at them, verbal barbs, um, or the the Cosmeteers and Superboy bantering back and forth. It's the, the it's it's very smartly dialogued and scripted. So uh, and it's well paced. And you know if you've stuck with us this long throughout the episode, you know that's one of the things that we're we're talking about on some of the books that have disappointed. Whether the the pacing for the overall plot has gone too slow, things like Tom Taylor's been doing, or whether it feels choppy like Catwoman, um, it's one of the harder things to get right as a comic book writer. And Kenny Porter's getting that right. And, you know, we may not have been a big fan of his DC Mech series, um, but there were some issues with, with pacing there. Um, you know, overall, I think it was pretty well paced for the amount of space that he had. Um, but so far through two, this Superboy series, it's, it's light years ahead of what DC Mech was uh, in terms of pacing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this almost, almost surprisingly so, because, again, I've never been the biggest fan of... Um, of Connor Kent only because most of my exposure to him was in when he was a replacement for Superman, you know, after the the death of Superman, when he was kind of a punk and not really that likable. Um, I don't have that love of him that a lot of people that read that Jeff Johns uh, Teen Titans run have, cause I've never read that run. Uh, so anyway, what do you think of this Rocky? Uh, I think that uh, this, this issue succeeded at pulling me back into this series. Because I, it was losing me in the first two issues. This pulled me in. Uh, I actually don't find this. This feels different to me. This doesn't feel derivative. This feels uh, new. At least to me it does. Uh, I, I actually really like the plotting here. I like the plotting. The pacing is really good. And there was, there was one particular scene where Connor is talking with one of his teammates. And, one of, and she makes the point, the observation in talking to him that it sounds because Connor's having a lot of fun. He, he joins the Cosmeteers and he goes on adventures with them. Taking out bad guys seems all over the place. They're like a glorified uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, they're having a lot of fun, and and it's obvious that uh, that Connor is really enjoying himself. And and one of his teammates says to him, "You know, with all due respect, it it because Connor was saying, I think I found myself. This is this this could be my future. He's implying that, and they're saying, well, she, I'm getting the impression that you're trying to recapture your past.'" 
And I think that was a very astute observation by his teammate because I, as the reader, I'm wondering, does Connor maybe miss who he was? Maybe Connor misses the adventures that he had, just like some of us miss the adventures he had back in the 90s when he was wearing that leather jacket. And so is this a case of Connor wanting to embrace a different kind of future or is Connor just naively thinking that he can relive the past again. It, I, I thought that was an interesting sort of thing. And I, I want to give uh, props to Kenny Porter. Uh, at the very at the very least, I'm thinking I want to relive my past. <laughs> I'm Connor Ken as I'm reading this, even if that's not the case for the main character. So I really enjoy that. I love the character Trav, this character Trav that ends up betraying the team. Uh, they, they end up capturing two thieves. And there's a scene here where apparently Trav is giving a couple of children that they rescue some rings. And apparently these rings are going to have a very ill effect on these kids because the, the two criminal, the two prisoners that they have, Trav ends, they're supposed to surrender them to the Green Lantern Corps, but Trav ends up killing them and actually has blood stain on his, uh, seems to have blood stain on his jacket, which Connor asks him about as this issue ends and so i think trav's uh, deception and betrayal of the team is going to be is discovered by connor ken by connor at the end of this issue and so i'm really curious to see what happens I'm, I'm curious to see what these rings do that connor gave these these children that they that him and connor supposedly rescued uh so kenny porter's got me invested in this story so full props to him i thought the art was uh, I was going to say merely serviceable, but no, it's actually better than that. It, it's it's visceral. I felt the action, especially when Connor was fighting the, the ships. And uh, the, the, like you said, you mentioned the dialogue and the diatribe and the cocky banter back and forth. I enjoyed that too. It worked. This was uh, well done. Kudos to Lindsay on the art. Uh, it worked for me. And so kudos to Kenny Porter, Kenny Porter and the whole creative team. This was uh, – it ended on, a, ended on a high note. Yeah, 100%. Uh, okay, so that's all the single issues from DC this week. There are a couple of collections out. There's a Batman One Bad Day Build-A-Box Set hardcover, so that collects all the, the One Bad Day uh, issues. There's also a Batman One Bad Day Riddler hardcover that just has the Riddler story from Tom King and Mitch Gerrids, which was far and away the best one. Um, and it has some extra material, back matter, and what have you, sketches. There's also a new version of Batman, the 1989 movie adaption trade paperback. It's back in print. And then The Flash, The Fastest Man Alive uh, trade paperback box set written by uh, a slew of writers, Jeff Johns, Denny O'Neill, Kenny Porter, Andy Kubert, Jerry Ordway, uh, handles some of the art. Um, and it, it collects the... Flash, the fastest man alive trade paperback that is a prelude to the, the movie that just came out. It also has the Flashpoint uh, story from Jeff Johns and then um, the Batman 1989 movie adaption, the one I just mentioned. You can also get it as part of this uh, box set because Michael Keaton plays such a big role in that uh, in that movie, which is sort of a take on Flashpoint, sort of not. Um, Batman is still Bruce Wayne, not uh, Thomas Wayne, which... Thomas Wayne Batman is one of my favorite things about Flashpoint. Um, you know, I, I try to forget about what Tom King did to the character as much as I like Tom. Uh, but anyway, that, that's the, the other collections that are out this week from uh, from DC. So uh, time for pick of the week, Rocky. Um, anything stand out? Uh, yeah, for me, I got to go with uh, Black Adam. 
Uh, I, it just, it impressed me. And, you know, I, I, I'm, it was stewing in me as I was talking. I, again, I, as frustrating as it was, damn, if Christopher Priest, I, 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 I can't believe I'm saying this about a 12 issue series that ends and doesn't have an ending, but ends on multiple cliffhangers. But, Damn it! Uh, th- I feel like I feel like the same. Like when I when I when I got to the ending of Across the Spider Verse, you know, it's like, damn, it's it's not over. There's more, but I'm kind of excited for the next chapter, and I'm really curious what the next chapter in Black Adam's going to be. It was a it was a convoluted journey at points getting to issue twelve of Black Adam, but uh, dare I say, if he didn't nail the landing, he it was a little choppy, but it was still. I'm still safe and sound and I, I want to go on another journey with Christopher Priest's uh, uh, Black Adam or see, I'm curious to see where the, where the character goes next. But uh, what's your pick of the week? It's like the, the plane was coming in for a landing and then it swooped back yeah. up. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes. Like the journey continues and I, I'm still on the plane. I want to know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I'm tempted to pick Titans number two just to, no, I won't. Well, you um, can. <laughs> I can put Generation Joker and and you know. <laughs> no, uh, I'm going to pick Superman number five. Um, I'm going to give some some uh, some love to Joshua Williamson and Jamal Campbell for what they're doing on the character. Uh, I I cannot remember the last time I was enjoying both Superman titles to this extent. Um, I just I, I'm I'm so in love with the idea of. Siobhan McDougal and Jimmy Olsen. I, I want them to get married. I want there to be a wedding special. <laughs> hey, hey. Wedding special from uh, Park. Like I want it all, man. I want I want there to be uh, little little uh, and they gotta have to have hyphenated names. Little Oh my uh, god. Like maybe they'll name it after Clark, right? Like Clark Olson McDougal or Clark McDougal Olson, like yeah, it would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, so <laughs> it's just so, it's so much fun and seeing classic Superman characters and I just I, I love everything about the series. I mean, not only is Williamson, you know, and I didn't mention this when I talked about the, the issue, but not only is Williamson bringing in these classic Superman villains like Parasite and like um, like Silver Banshee. But the fact that what Far- Doctors Farm and Graft are doing is sort of attacking Superman with his own legacy, right? Because we know they're using Kryptonian technology. To, they use Kryptonian technology to amp up Parasite. They use Kryptonian technology to amp up uh, Silver Banshee's abilities. So they're they're sort of, you know, Superman is is so powerful because of his Kryptonian abilities, and they're sort of meeting him on that same level by using Kryptonian tech to enhance the. Uh, the power of these villains. So can't wait to see who they, who they amp up next. So that's my, that's my pick of the week. Nice. No, that's good. That was my runner up. That would have been my runner up. So it was overall, it was a, I still say it was a very positive week overall, you know, uh, aside from the occasional rant, it was still a very positive uh, week overall. World's finest was excellent. The vigil was excellent. Nightwing uh, again, with that different art perspective, fantastic. Um, so yeah, overall, overall pretty solid week. So, uh, had some interviews come out recently. Uh, if you guys are curious to learn more about Superman space age, Eisner nominated series from Mark Russell with Mike Allred art that just came out on our recent Superman Sunday episode. Uh, and then we've had some creator owned spotlights that have come out, uh, recently as well. So check those out. Uh, and if you're curious about other content that Rocky has put out on his channel, you want to make sure you subscribe. So head over to YouTube 
do a search for comic space boom exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell, leave some comments, uh, subscribe so you uh, don't miss out on any content. And if you want to hear more of the back thousands of episodes that we have for the Comic Source podcast, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we appreciate you joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.